When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. What's going on, No Bad Dog Army? Tom Davis here. Welcome back to the No Bad Dogs podcast. And what a slap in the face Monday is after Christmas. Am I right? I mean, I look at it a different different uh, glance. I, I love what I do. I love my job. So I'm excited, to be honest, to get back to work. I get really antsy-pantsy when I'm not working, when I don't have a mission, when I don't have a job. Um, so I'm, I'm truthfully excited to, to be back in the saddle, uh, putting this podcast together for you guys. But anyway, nonetheless, I hope you guys had a wonderful, safe, happy holidays as we gear up for the New Year's. It's kind of like this weird part in time where you know, it's like just weird, right? It's like the couple days before another big holiday and then getting into the new year. So regardless, uh, we're here to provide you guys with some entertainment, some dog training information. This is a podcast that we don't do very often uh, with another dog trainer, Nate Schumer from California. Uh, and this is this is a great opportunity for you guys to see a different lens at a very um, traditional trajectory compared to mine, for sure, as far as how Nate got into dog training and where he went to school and what he did and how he did it. Also, just some more dog training information about some of his procedures and steps and how he does stuff. So I just, you know, there, there's there's a lot of people out there that, uh, you know, when Nate reached out, it was like, uh, we get a lot of inquiries to be on the podcast, which we're grateful for, but we don't want everybody on the podcast that's got a new book coming out about flies and maggots and a uh, new CBD oil for elephants and a new leash for tigers. Uh, not that that's bad, but you know, I don't want to waste anybody, especially you guys' time. My viewers, my listeners, you guys are extremely important to me and I don't want to waste your time. And so we just found uh, Nate kind of aligned with what I think you guys would really like to hear and it'll be beneficial most importantly. It's not just trying to find somebody similar to me. Uh, it's really trying to find something that's beneficial to my audience. And so that's what this podcast is. Again, Nate kind of went down this um, traditional roadmap, and I think it would be a good perspective for you guys to hear and see. And don't forget, you guys, listen to the end of the podcast. I'll be answering three of your dog training questions. If you want me to answer some of your dog training questions as listeners, all you have to do is head over to the iTunes review chart and leave a review with your question. If you're listening to this on Spotify, it would mean the world to me and my team if you guys can leave us a review uh it's you know the podcast i think in the future or even now is just the amount of people who you know i read the reviews and the amount of people who just say that this changes their dog's life just because it's easier for them to consume as content via podcast instead of videos is amazing so i'm i'm excited to continue to ch- to help and give you guys information at every aspect in the in the dog world so thank you guys for listening Make sure you leave a review and all my courses and my new coffee drop and all my fun stuff is in the description below as well as uh, Nate's information as well. So let's get into the podcast.
why don't you just tell me and tell the people who are listening a little bit about, I know you're in California, uh, obviously a dog trainer. And uh, for those of you listening, Nate reached out, you know, hey man, you're a dog person, I'm a dog person, let's get together, let's let's talk shop. So you guys are going to listen to that right now. And uh, so, so give me a little bit of like, your background and how you got into working with dogs professionally. That's always a good place to start. Yeah, definitely. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate you doing this because yes, I definitely reached out. You and I had both worked on a project, not together, Mm. but up together. And I saw that and I was like, yes, I know Tom Davis. He's an awesome guy. Seems like a great trainer. I would love to collaborate with him. So I reached out. I was thinking of maybe doing some training videos or something, but you're like, let's do a podcast. And I thought that would be great as well. I always enjoy talking dogs. But for my history, I started training dogs professionally in 2012. What got me started was I was in the Marine Corps for eight years. After I got out of the Marine Corps, I started doing post-production in Los Angeles. And it was cool, but it wasn't for me sitting behind a desk all day, every day. And one of my buddies invited me out to his facility, Jeff Hankinson, and he's been training dogs since we were in high school. And so he said, yeah, you should come out and check it out. I know you love dogs. I think it would be a fun experience. So I spent three weeks at his facility and things just clicked. And I really enjoyed spending that time with him. And he said, you know, we're not getting any younger, man. And I was 28 at the time. And I said, I've been considering switching professions. I think dog training would be for me. And he said, okay, well, if you want to do dog training and you want to go to a school to kind of fast track your learning process, he said, I would recommend Michael Ellis or Tom Rose. I looked at both of them and Tom Rose accepted the GI Bill. And so that was the route I took. Mm. And I went to Tom Rose school. I did the professional course, their master course and their advanced master course. I was fortunate enough to be in a class that had some really strong trainers, some phenomenal guys. So when you're working with people that are at a very high tier, it kind of ups your own skill set a little bit. And so I came back to Los Angeles. I set up a business called Orion Canine Academy. I ended up having a two-month waiting list. It was going great, primarily focused on staying trains. And Tom Rose reached back out to me and he said, hey, would you like to come back and be an assistant instructor? Nice. And I said, Why would I want to pass up on an opportunity like that? Because I was still new, and being an assistant instructor didn't put as much pressure as being the actual top instructor. I was able to assist the instructors. And it gave me the opportunity to work underneath one of my favorite dog trainers, Dave Van Garderen. He's now the head trainer over at Kennelwood Academy. And that guy is incredibly impressive when it comes to training dogs. And his drive and ambition is far beyond most people I've worked with. So being able to train under him really helped improve my skills quite a bit. And it opened up my door to open up rather to new concepts of training, how to apply training. And he was really big in protection. So I was able to start doing a lot of protection work. Uh, I was lucky enough to meet Forrest Mickey. He he, uh, stopped by the Tom Rose School when I was there and he gifted me the Healer's Toolbox, which I did that program. And it's probably one of the number one programs I recommend to people who want to learn how to have a beautiful focused heel. Mm -hmm. Because if you see his heel, it's incredible. Amazing. And also, of course, Michael Ellis' courses. I've done a lot of his programs and courses and I've learned quite a bit from him. I love the way that he's able to explain things and break it down in a way that's easy to understand, but more importantly, easy to implement. 
I did that for about a year. After being there for a year, I went to Colorado. I helped set up two dog training businesses out there. I spent another year there, and then I came back to California. At that point, I set up a nonprofit called Here is Legacy. It was in honor of my late dog. And the goal or the mission of that nonprofit was to improve the quality of life for all dogs by educating those that care for them. And it didn't do that well because no one knew what Here is Legacy was. The branding wasn't on par in order to get the eyeballs that I needed to accomplish the mission. In 2017, Animal Planet reached out to me and they were getting ready to produce, or not Animal Planet, I'm sorry, Plimzo Production Company. It's a UK production company. They had a show out in the UK called Rescue Dog to Superdog, and they were coming to the United States to bring the show to the U.S. audience. And they reached out to me. I spoke with them. I did a couple interviews. And they said, we think you're great. We would love to have you as one of the hosts on the show. And I said, awesome. I'm totally down. And they said, well, now the next thing is whether or not we get the green light from Animal Planet. And they mm. said, if you hear from us ever again, that means we didn't get the green light and we wish you the best. And if we call you back, that means we received the green light and we're going to move forward. And I think it might have been a week, maybe two after that. I got a call from the executive producer of Plimsoll Production Company, and she said, congratulations, you're hosting a show on Animal Planet. Cool. And I was, so this is incredible. What an amazing opportunity to be able to work with Animal Planet, something I've always wanted to be able to do. We did it. We did six episodes. We were going to do another season, but it wasn't greenlit for the second season. So we did one season, but still it was an incredible opportunity. We did six episodes, worked with 12 people, training service dogs. And some of them I'll still talk with even to this day after these years. But it wasn't, it was such a short amount of time that some people criticized it where they said, well, you can't train a service dog that fast. And you know, if you respond to every single comment, you won't have any time to do anything else. Mm -hmm. And I, yes, training a service dog takes a long time. And it depends on the type of service dog. If you're training, perhaps, let's say, a PTSD service dog that only has one or two tasks and they just need some really good basic obedience, that's going to take way less time than if we're training a dog that's going to be a CNI dog or a seizure alert dog or a mobility dog. These are going to take much longer, but we continued working with them even after the show ended. Once that was done, I wanted to continue helping with my original mission of improving the quality of life for all dogs by helping those that care for them. And I started posting my content on YouTube. I've always been interested in YouTube, but I never took the leap. I was either intimidated or perhaps I thought I would fail. I would post the content. Nobody would watch it. I would mm. feel like Cool. And I said, you know what, even if it helps 10 people, even if it helps a handful of dogs, then it's going to be worth my time. And I enjoy training. So it really wasn't that much work. It was more about whether or not I put myself out there beyond Animal Planet. And the nice thing about something like working with Animal Planet is they make you look good. Yeah. You know, going to make you look bad. And with YouTube, and I'm kind of curious to see if you've had the same experience. It's actually helped me become a better trainer and a better instructor and teacher. Because when we put things out there and we get feedback 
from the audience that are trying to learn and they're trying to work with their dogs, they ask us questions that we may not have considered before. Mm -hmm. And that find different ways of explaining it because often, you know, as dog trainers, we're explaining the same thing over and over again, but in different ways. Which way can I explain it to this person to where it's going to click and they're going to be able to implement that training and have the success that they want with their dog? And so that's really changed my approach to training, even though a lot of it is still very comparable to the way that it was when I was learning. I've just been able to add so much more to it. Has that been the same experience with you? I, I've, I've studied your work. I haven't gone back and looked at some of your very first videos where hmm. it's like you were putting your stuff out there for the clients that you had. So they could look back at it. They could reference it. It could be that reminder of what they need to do to continue having that success with their dog. And it just seems like it just kept going and growing. And your production quality is amazing. It's entertaining. It's fun to watch. And the results are quite impressive. Have you made a bunch of growth from having the YouTube channel as a trainer and a behavioralist? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Uh, yes, I think, um, the, yes, because you know, in the beginning it would be, I'm such a, and that's the interesting, that's like the, the pros and cons of, of putting yourself out there in general, right? You want to put yourself out there genuinely as a creator because you're passionate about something and you care about doing something. And, and I'm not interested in being right. I'm interested in helping people. You know what I mean? And I and and so for so long I used to get comments and I would lose sleep over it. I'd be like, how, how what? How does how did they get that out of that? You know? And it wasn't until you know, I kind of like grew up on social media a little bit. I I graduated high school in 07 and right, you know, right in that era is when Instagram came out and got popular and all these other things, you know, Twitter started getting very, very popular. It was already popular, but, and so YouTube was, being a YouTuber wasn't really a thing at that point, being a kind of a self-produced creator, you know, we didn't have as many streaming things um, where now we do. And so when I started, like you said, it was really just about I want to help uh, my clients go back and reference things and I want to help maybe my local people. Yeah. And so the answer is definitely yes. Taking in information that I would never consider or look at, but I think more than taking in pointers from people as they're watching, I've also gotten so good at handling certain situations from haters. I, I would not be in the position I'm in in any way, shape or form successfully mentally, uh, the man that I am today, the father I am today, the husband I am today, I wouldn't be where I'm at without the people who don't like me because I, I, in the, in the early stages, I'm talking five, six years ago, I would try so hard to prove a point where they would be like, Oh, you can't blah, 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 or you shouldn't. And I, so now I'm at a point where I hardly even touch the dogs that I work with. If you watch my videos, especially the last six months, I don't really touch the dogs too much. And I've done that because I'm coaching the owners through certain things. And so it's really sculpted me of like, oh, well, you know, whatever, whatever it was, I would take as like ammunition and I'd work harder and harder and get better and better and better and better. And every video we put out, I wanted to get better to, I think in the beginning, and I'm still growing as a human, 
you know, is immature of me to try to prove that I'm right. Where now I've transferred things and I've I've matured as a human. I'm like, I'm not trying to, I'm not going to ever prove to certain people that I'm right. And I don't want to necessarily be right. I used to, but now I just want to help the people who are looking for help. So definitely has helped me. The comments, whether they're good, bad, or ugly, they have helped me, or the feedback, I should say, have definitely helped me become a better overall person because I really like because how how many times in 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 a world that we live in that you can post your job in your life and for me it's like everything like my whole ecosystem I pretty much post and you get hundreds of people thousands of people sometimes millions of people commenting on what they think and you're you know it's it's a very difficult it's weird it's a weird thing <laughs> it's difficult in the beginning but I think being a dog trainer on YouTube we're fortunate enough that I would say 99.9% of the comments are positive. Oh, yeah. And rightfully so. They're providing value. And another thing that I see that is really beneficial with your channel, and I've recommended it to a handful of people. In fact, I was training with one of my favorite trainers last week. She's been on my channel a handful of times, Bethany Perdome, PH Dogs. She's awesome. And she has another trainer with her. And I told her, I said, yeah, next week I'm going to be doing a podcast with Tom Davis from Upstate Canine. And she goes, oh, I love Tom. I spend him all the time. I said, that's awesome. Yeah. And, and what's really cool too, the fact that, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier, because I was asking you, how did you end up becoming so well known as the go-to guy when somebody has those extreme behavioral issues, whether it's fear, aggression, both of those. And what I like about your content is you're, you're showing the problems that the dog have and then how you're able to work through it and the results. And what that does is it often gives people hope that their dog that they think is really bad is not as bad as they may think, as you say, no bad dogs. And there is a way they can improve it. They can fix it with the right training, the right understanding and the right guidance. And so with that, is most of your clients as what we see on your channel or are those the ones that you prefer to post because they are the challenging cases, the extreme cases, the cases that quite frankly, a lot of trainers don't even want to mess with because they don't want to get bit or they don't know how to deal with that extreme fear. And, and you do quite an exceptional job with that. Thank you. So what is your approach as far as what you're posting is it the extreme cases or is that mostly what you're getting because you built up that strong reputation? I think both. Um, it's both. One goes into the other. I'm getting those clients because that's my reputation, but that's also like, you know what I mean? Like if you, if you're watching, that's like the beautiful thing of what's, what, what is starting to happen with my career and my life and my content creation is that's, I didn't like we were talking earlier. is like, I didn't, I didn't know I was becoming a reactive dog trainer or a German Shepherd reactive dog trainer, even one would say, <laughs> because of the mm -hmm. amount of German Shepherds that are on chan my channel. But um, yeah, it's really a little bit of both. So I don't, I don't, it doesn't, I only like, you, you, life is so short, man. And you're only here for just a small blimp of time. And there's so much in the world uh, that, you know, we could be, it could not happen. And in having a son and as you, as you have a child now too, it's just like, it's such a miracle to just be breathing and be healthy. And I'm like, man, what, 
what an amazing opportunity as a human being to just, you know, have my legs and be able to see and be able to talk and communicate, let alone be good at something. I mean, that's amazing. So for me, I'm just, I try to practice this gratitude. And and so my point is, is I, I, I only want to do stuff that I want to jump out of bed to do. I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to waste other people's time. Like if I'm working with you and I'm not a hundred percent about it, what's the point? And so I only really am passionate about the problem solving dogs because, and I say this often, and I'm, and my business is set up a little bit differently too than most people think. Like I have 20 employees that you, you may never see in my channel. So I have a big operating system behind what I do and it gets filtered out. You know, we have the board and train, we have the private training, we have the out of state, we have the, the, all this stuff. And so for me, like, I'm not like, if one of my trainers can take a case that opens up the spot for another person who's having a really hard time with their dog in my schedule. So just for an example, like one thing we learned on tour and we like made, made note on when we, we traveled from Nashville to LA and back is we're going to do applications next year because we couldn't take as many dogs as we, you know, people wanted to sign up for, we just couldn't. And one thing that we're going to do is applications because the amount of people that just wanted to come out and, work with me because instead of having problems was like 80% of the dogs, which I'm really grateful they signed up and I'm really happy that I got an opportunity to work with them. But there were some people like on the wait list that were like, my dog's going to be euthanized. Like I really need help. So I think both, man, I, I only work with the behavioral cases because it's what I love to do. And it's what I'm good at. Frankly, I'm not really good at, it's hard for me to get super fired up and be like, see that sit, that's, it was amazing. Look, look at that sit. It was great. You know, I, I don't want to be fake. And what I really like to do is problem solve. I'm like, see this problem. It's like, you know, when I'm working with these people over the weekend, I'm like hammering away, like tink, 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 tink. And I'm just trying to get in and crack that case. And that's what like, that's what drives me and gets me up at a, at a bed. But again, at the same time, because of the way that my business developed organically, that's all I get is behavioral cases. And, and, and again, be, the way that my, um, training programs are set up is nobody's going to pay to come and work with me when their dog isn't healing just right. Typically, you know, so it's, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's really what we've generated is, I mean, there's, I mean, we probably put out like probably 50% of our, the work that I do, like genuinely, we probably film, say we film a hundred clients in six months, we put out 50 of those clients. The other, the other part just goes to the members club. They get all that stuff for free full length. So like a little bit of both. So that's a lot of for the members to be able to see the entire, not, you know, not edited. Of course, when we you know, the uh, retention rate does matter for YouTube. And if we want to get our content out to a lot of people, that's something we have to consider. Mm -hmm. And so editing and making it entertain, which um, I don't know how big your team is, your production team, but they do a great job with it. It's super fun to watch. I didn't know you had that with the channel members, though, where they can watch the entire thing. And that's something that I think would be incredibly valuable for a lot of trainers that want to see a lot of different cases, especially new trainers. I have two trainers that I'm working with right now, two students. One had recently completed the last two-week course with Michael Ellis. The other one is just incredibly motivated, who wants to help people and train dogs. I think I'm going to have to point them in the direction to get that membership because what really separates, you know, let's say we're talking about skill level being the same, 
But what separates a trainer that's been doing it for 10 years? How long have you been doing it? I think 12, 13 years, something like that. Yeah, something like that. Roughly. Yeah. So you have all that time. So your frame of reference is significantly larger than someone who doesn't have that much time. And so that's almost like entering a fast track to see, okay, look at all these different cases. This dog is acting this way. How is it approached? What were we able to do to fix it? What were we able to teach the dog? What, how were we building the dog's confidence, the counter conditioning, building that trust, all these different things. And now I have a question. Do you approach when you're working with your clients? I know you said you do board and train as well at your business. So I'm assuming that's primarily obedience, also fixing behavioral issues, but your trainers probably work a lot of obedience, right? Sit down, come heal, place all these different standard things. Yeah. Honestly, my, my board and train is, is littered with behavioral cases. It's, it's a lot, I'd say it's 50, 50. Uh, and obviously like obedience, like the way that we structure it is a three week minimum and then a six week maximum. We used to do a two week minimum, but now we just bumped it up. But, um, yeah, it's actually, we have quite a bit of behavioral cases. Actually, my team is really, really good. Um, I'm really great again, grateful and lucky to have the team that I do. They've been you know, really great. So yeah, actually both. And that's the other opportunity too, is I can go to my facility at any time and start cracking down some videos if, if, if need be, you know, which is great. I mean, that's such a, an amazing thing as a creator to be like, I can go and create content like 24 seven, which is a blessing and a curse. But yeah. So my board and train is typically, it's like, I'd say it's like 50, 50. We get a lot of behavioral cases actually. Oh, I believe it. And for your trainers, do you train your trainers? Do you get ones that completed maybe AP or they've done a different school or they work with Mike Ellis? How do you find your trainers? Uh, that's a that's the hardest thing I think in this business to to do is in any business, right? It doesn't matter if you're Dunkin' Donuts, Chick-fil-A or a dog training company is finding good people to help scale and, and withheld like your mission and and your standards is really difficult. And, um, the way that we find them, we've gotten lucky over times. Um, we have a college locally that used to do a, well, they still do, but, um, anyway, so a couple of them have come from that program. It's like a dog training program. It's like a four years, a four year canine science program. And we've got a couple from them and, and, but a lot of those people also like watch my videos and, and kind of like organically get involved. And then other people have been past, uh, people have come to seminars and we've met and, um, the way that we hire is we do trialing. And the thing is, is for me, I'm like, you either have it or you don't. And if you don't have it, I can't teach you to have it. It just can't. Sorry. You know, it's like, it's like singing or dancing is like, you may be able to hit those keys and play those notes, but it's very robotic. It's not fluid. There's mm -hmm. no, there's no art behind it. It's no like, wow, you know, like really, like really fluidity and, and art formish and passionate and, and all that beautiful stuff. And so, you know, we trial people and within the first two weeks, we're like, yeah, this isn't, this isn't for you. And then we have another facility that has, um, that has a uh, daycare. And so, you know, they can find a position there. And sometimes that even doesn't work out for them because they really don't have it. <laughs> so uh, we do, we do that. And then oftentimes like what my staff does, and I'll be honest is I will train them to some degree about my standards, how we train, what's most important. Um, dogs come first, people come second, always all that stuff. Like we have standards, but then 
um, what, what ends up happening is, is they just kind of like watch me train as I'm training out of States or, um, they'll, they'll learn from my other stuff. I have guys on my staff that have been with me for close to five years. So I trust them well enough that they can watch them every day. Cause there's, they're all working together every day. And then when I go down, you know, I'll just check in, how's it going? What's going on? Do you have any questions? You know, come watch me work this dog. And then they'll sit in on like my, my programs. Um, when I'm working with my out of state clients, they'll sit in on that for a while. Yeah, and that's incredibly valuable. And I noticed you said that you also have a daycare. That's one of the best ways to just observe yeah. and learn dog behavior. And yeah. I think a lot of people skip that as if it's a waste of time, but just watching how dogs communicate with each other, their body language, picking up these small details, which uh, if you ever read the book uh, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, he talked about people within their profession. And actually that book was... Uh, Patricia McConnell book for the love of a dog, which is quite an exceptional book when it comes to dog behaviors and being able to read body language that will help them and body language. And the reason why I was bringing up the book blink is after you've been doing something for so long, it almost becomes natural. It becomes so easy. You probably heard the saying, everything is difficult before it becomes easy, even walking, right? It's difficult, but the toddler keeps going until they end up walking. But when you've been doing for something for so long, to you, it comes naturally. You see it and instantly you know what's taking place. There's this, uh, I think at one point it was a pretty popular video. Patricia McConnell uses it as a demonstration. And there's these two dogs and they basically come face to face. They're not touching, but they're very close. And right in between both of them, there's a pile of food. And as you're staring at them, you're trying to see if you're using that terminology. I don't like to use the terminology alpha very much because people think at that point they need to dominate their dogs, which I'm all about being on the same team. But what I see alpha is priority access to limited resources. And so these dogs are looking at each other and one of them just slightly turns their head. It's very subtle, but you know, okay, that one is essentially telling the other dog this is yours, you're the alpha, or however you want to use that terminology. And the reason why I bring that up, for people who are students of dog training, they want to be a professional dog trainer, I struggled a lot in the very beginning, as I'm sure everybody does. When I was going to the Tom Rose School, the biggest critique that the instructors had was I overtrained the dogs, which I did. And that came from the mentality of being in the Marine Corps. As I told you, I did eight years in the military. I was a drill instructor. I had seven platoons. I made 500 or helped train 550 Marines. And the mentality as a drill instructor is they don't know it. You're going to make them learn it. And it doesn't matter how long it takes. That does not work in the dog training world. And so I was working the dogs too long. I was using, you know, proper techniques, reward base, all that good stuff. But I was overworking the dogs. I was shutting them down. And so when they said I was training the dogs too much, because in my mind, I'm not at the school just to get the information. If I just want the information, I could probably look at it online. I need the hands-on practice and I need someone looking at me, telling me what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong. So I'm not an early riser. I would start training when the class started at 9 a.m. And I would pretty much never leave the training building until 10 p.m. And so they said I was overworking the dogs. So I said, okay, I had four dogs at the time. I went out and I got two more dogs so I can start working and continue working on that skill set. 
And I was still struggling. My first dog, he was a long-haired Dutch Shepherd, and I couldn't even get him to do it alone. No matter how many pounds I did. And since I had no frame of reference, I hadn't trained enough dogs. I had dogs growing up, you know, family dogs that I loved, but I, I didn't really do any sort of formal training. And I didn't know, is it me? Is it the dog? What's happening here? Why isn't the dog responding to my commands? And I'm sure it was explained. I probably missed it. But you know the separation, for example, when you're teaching a dog a marker or a clicker, the sound has to precede the delivery of the reward in order for the dog to become classically conditioned. That's something Michael Ellis talks about a lot, which, as I said earlier, I'm a huge fan of his. And I was struggling. I wasn't getting the results. And I went back to, after I finished, um, or I was about halfway through the professional course, I went and I spent a little bit of time. It was like a couple days with my friend that I was telling you about as a professional dog trainer in Chicago, Jeff Hankinson. And I was working with my dogs and he's like, you're pairing everything. And I said, what are you talking about? He says, you're pairing, you're overshadowing. And I said, please explain what you mean. He says, if you present two things to a dog at the exact same time, whatever is more relevant to the dog is what they're going to focus on. Dogs will always focus on movement first. He goes, separate it, say the command, and then lure your dog into the sit. And I started doing that, but I still struggled because naturally our mind and our body want to move at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so struggling a little bit. And one of my other friends, he said, I started filming myself and I saw a lot of improvements. You should try doing that. And I said, okay. So I started filming all my training sessions and I would review them three times. I would watch the training session. It's pretty easy when you're doing obedience because they're short, you know, anywhere from a few minutes to maybe 15 minutes if you're working a stay or something like that. So it wasn't committing that much time, but it was putting my training up for review, which was important for me. And so when I watched the video, the first time through, I would pay attention just to the dog. What is the dog thinking? Is the dog paying attention to me? Are they distracted? Are they becoming bored? Does it seem like they're learning? Then I would watch it again and I'd focus just on myself. How is my communication? Am I interesting to the dog? Am I too exciting? Am I making enough contrast between the the behavior and the reward event? Am I doing the things correctly? Then I would watch it a third time and I would pay attention to the entire picture. And doing that, really helped improve my ability to observe someone else when they're training their dogs and to be able to pinpoint, you're doing this wrong, you need to fix this, you need to adjust this, and then they're able to start getting the results. And I think from being in the military, I approach things very systematically. I like that process. Do you have a systematic approach or do you have some sort of a template that your trainers to follow or any sort of template that maybe you have your clients follow or even that you follow or is it very much more organic i'm seeing the dog i'm seeing what the dog's doing i've seen it enough times i want to do this approach this is going to be the best yeah that i'd say yeah that one it's a it's a <laughs> it's definitely organic to me in 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 every way just because i Again, I wasn't traditionally trained how to do anything. It wasn't um, anything like that. It was uh, let me see what this dog is doing. I'm like, okay, what what do you like? I that's what it was. It was always just, what's wrong with your dog? Oh well, they're this, and I'm like, all right, let me just walk around. Let me see what's going on, and then I'm like, oh, that's it right there. See that, you know, and I and I would just work through that. So that's why 
for me, um, unless I'm doing obedience, right? Cause then there's, if I'm building a dog or doing foundation with the dog, which I, re- I get to do maybe once a year and I'm not exaggerating. I'm a professional dog person and I maybe get to develop one dog a year if I'm, if I'm lucky, just because I'm, that's, I'm just, I'm not as good at that as, as, or I'm not, I shouldn't be putting my energy into that because there's so many dogs that need my, my attention in other places. And so for me, because I'm so like, again, when you're going and and I want to dig into the Tom Rose school a little bit, just for my, for my uh, own knowledge. And of course my viewers, because there's a lot of people who want to become a dog trainer or whatever, and we'll go down that route to talk about it. Um, but for me again, like I'm not, when, when we're working with dogs, it's difficult for me because I'm not getting like when, when you go to Michael's school, uh, in my experience, you know, when I was there visiting and hanging out for a while, a lot of the dogs are just dogs. They're either their, their personal, the students' dogs or their, their, their clients' dogs, but they're living with them a lot of times. So I'm sure they bring in behavioral cases for them to work with, but it's not like that for me. It's I'm getting a dog in. I don't know. Again, when, 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 when clients come into me, I don't know their name. I don't know the dog. I don't know where they're from. I don't know the history. I know nothing. I just show up. I'm like, hi, my name's Tom. They're like, hi, my name's Christina. And I'm like, is your dog aggressive? They're like, yes. I'm like, does it have a bite history? They're like, no. I'm like, all right, come in and let's talk. And then we just go. And that's, that's how I operate. But with my, with my staff, we do have mandatory, like in the beginning stages, I would send my clients to Michael school. Cause he would, he's so he's the best at getting that done. You know, like I'm not a tradition, like I'm not going to, I stay in my lane. You know, I'm not a traditionally uh, skilled dog trainer in a, an obedient sense where I can do all that stuff. I mean, I shouldn't say that I can do it, but I'm not traditional. So it's hard for me to explain it. Cause how do you ex- like for you, how do you explain something to somebody that just comes to you? How do I explain how to, how to teach you how to do it when I'm like, so now I've gotten a, a, that's been my career. It's like, I'm like, okay, I have this thing where I can say, okay, this is what's wrong with the dog and here's how to do it. And that's, what's kind of my secret sauce or my, my formula is I've gotten to a point where I can now have a dog owner and coach them through how to fix their problems with their dog, you know, in a couple of days. And so when I get my staff in, yeah, it's a lot of like, I want you to watch this. I want you to watch this. Now I have a couple courses of my own that they will watch. But oftentimes it's, like you said, it's experience, it's knowledge. It's going in there and watching this, you know, because we've had people who have done that where they're like, oh, I'm going to come in and, you know, I, I worked at a shelter or I volunteered at a shelter. You know, I know a lot about dogs and they come in and they start seeing like, you know, really well-trained dogs and they're like, holy shit, this is different, you know? So, yeah. So for me, it's, it's, it is frustrating because again, I'm, I'm, I'm a very like non-traditionally taught myself type of guy. Uh, I just kind of picked up that guitar and started fiddling with it. You know, it was like, Oh, like, Oh, this sounds good. And people are like, how the hell did you do that? You're like, I don't know. (laughs) It just popped in my head. So it is a little bit frustrating for my staff and some of my clients too, because they're like, you know, but I am creating formulas on how to express that better and also how to like squeeze that stuff out of that. So I'm like, I, I can give it to you at scale. So anyway, yeah, I mean, you're very humble because you definitely know how to train. And, and a lot of people separate dog training. Uh, a lot of people separate dog training 
being a behavioralist, but I believe if you're a really good behavioralist, you also know dog training. And if you're a really good dog trainer, you also know the behavioral side. Because I know without a doubt in my mind, if I were to give a behavioral case to Forrest Mickey, who I highly respect, I know he would be able to take care of it. I know he would be able to do it because he's such an exceptional dog trainer and he's worked with so many dogs. And what you were saying too about whether or not, you know, these students where they're working with their own dogs, then they are learning obedience. They are learning the communication channels. And you operate in what I like to call the gray area of dog training. So dog training is black, white, but there is a huge gray area. And that gray area is the hardest area, in my professional opinion, to teach people. The gray area is not as easily transferred. It's harder to teach, and it just takes time. So even though, as you put it, you weren't trained traditionally, which what does that mean? What does being trained traditionally mean? Going to a formal school? Or does it mean working with other exceptional trainers to be able to learn and mentor underneath them? Or is it working with hundreds of dogs and producing results and knowing how to do it. You definitely have the training to do this. So you're, you're very humble in that aspect. And so on my channel, I try to teach the black and white. And often people will come to me with the problems that are in that gray area. And it's like, that's the art of dog training. So when we look at dog training, it's a science and it's an art. The science is more black and white, right? We have uh, pre-match principle. We have classical conditioning. We have opera conditioning. We build the dog's motivation. We know reinforcement encourages the repeat of a behavior. Punishment prevents the repeat of a behavior. We know all this terminology. Mm-hmm. And then the gray area is how, or I'm sorry, the art of dog training is how do I take the science And how do I adjust it to this specific dog? And so it's very difficult when on on videos trying to teach people that gray area. And that's what I think you do on your channel. You you have a lot of that area that is very difficult to replicate. And it really just takes hands on. Like seeing a lot of it is good. You know, getting that information if we're thinking about, uh, and I I learned this because I was in the military, Bloom's Cognitive Taxonomy. That's how the military teaches. The bottom is the knowledge. You're getting that information. But a lot of times it doesn't really make sense yet. And then you have the application where you start to apply it, but it still hasn't clicked. And then you have the comprehension, the aha moment. Oh, that all makes sense. I get it. And then you have the the, uh, analysis and synthesis. Synthesis level is when you're able to take what you know and you're able to come up with new ways of either teaching it or utilizing it in a way to get really fast and quick results. When you train with Forrest Mickey and Michael Ellis, you did some bite work with them as well, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. What are your bite work? Do you enjoy it? I do. So that was one of those things, you know, when you asked me, like, why don't you do obedience or why don't you do, uh, or, you know, whatever, why do you just do behavioral stuff? And so, you know, I did some bite work because I was like, man, that just looks cool. Like, that's cool. Like, that's amazing. How do you get a dog to do that? And so I like it. It just, again, it doesn't like, you know, when you just like, I don't know, try food and you're like, yeah, it's okay. But I'm not like, oh, I love this. Like, this is amazing. Wow. You know? And so for me, like when I did protection work, I wasn't like, because it doesn't, it's, I like it. Uh, I'm ju- I guess I'm just getting granule, uh, but it, it, it doesn't, how am I going to help a dog 
at scale with bite work. I'm like, I'm not, you know, it might help that individual dog. And it's really a, it takes two to tango, you know, you get like a good decoy and then you get, you get a handler and it's really that and the dog, of course. But, um, so for me again, like it was just one of those things where like to kind of go back, what you were saying is like, what is classically trained? I feel like when you're doing dog, and that's why I want to dig into the Tom Rose school. Cause I've forest also went there obviously. And, um, some other people went there and it's a, it's, it's good school. So from, from what I've heard. So for me, it's like, okay, guys, this is what operant conditioning is. This is what classical conditioning is. This is what punishment is this. I had, I didn't get, I didn't get that, you know, for me it was, Hmm. And that's why so many people will say like your, your, your information is digestible. And I'm like, well, I don't know any other way. I, I wasn't taught classically of putting down a pen and paper to study all these different, what the verbiage means, what they mean, what's the history of these things. I started to get into that as I grew and I'm like, okay, I need to educate myself a little bit more. And, and I have over the last X amount of years, but for me, it was like, that's, that's that traditional. I was just like school of hard knocks type thing. Like, um, you know, like a business owner that, uh, you know, didn't graduate with, with, uh, with a PhD in business or with any degree in business, but also went out and started a fortune bazillion dollar company or whatever it is. It's like, right. you know, I don't know. I was like, I just like figured it out as I went, you know, I had this ability and like, you don't, it's hard to teach drive. It's hard to teach ambition. It's hard to teach hard work ethics. Uh, I'm sure as you know, like as you went into the military, you saw certain people that came in and you're like, man, this is gonna be really hard for you. And then there's other people that are like, show me how, how do I do it? How do I get better? You know? And for me, and that's what it was. So Anyway, um, yeah, so I, I, I just, uh, it, it, it's, I think like Michael and Forrest, as you were saying is, uh, and those are just two dog trainers for most of you probably know Forrest cause he's been on my podcast a while, but, uh, those are two people who I feel like can break down information in such a, you know, a, a different way. And it's hard, but it is like, I don't send my clients to Michael, because he's not, he's, he teaches dog trainers, right? And then it gets diluted down again. And so anyway, so I don't know even know how we got into this little rabbit hole, but um, yeah. That's all good. <laughs> and I know you said you wanted to ask some questions about the Tom Rose school. Uh, clearly, I'm a fan of the school. You know, I went there, I was an assistant instructor there, and I've even filmed a few episodes for my channel there. And I mean, I was just talking to Tom the other day. Something about Tom Rose, uh, which stood out to me when I first met him. And keep in mind, I came from, as I said before, the military, which is a stressful environment to say the least. I mean, I was, I loved it. I loved my military experience. I was, I was a drill instructor. I was a combat swim instructor, martial art instructor, and some of the best times of my life. And it taught me discipline. What you were saying before, where it's hard to teach someone ambition, it's hard to teach them drive. You're 100% right. And the only way I've seen to be able to do that is if they have some sort of extreme life-changing experience or they're forced to do it. I wasn't a hard worker when I was young. I wasn't very disciplined and I didn't have many choices. And that's one of the reasons why I joined the Marine Corps. But I also thought it looked really cool. You know, so I didn't know much about it, but I'm like, that looks awesome. I want to do that. And I wanted to do the Marines because they just sounded like the most intense. And I got my butt kicked on a daily basis. I was 
forced to become disciplined. I didn't have a choice. And that's what I mean. That's like the real, if you're going to teach someone how to be hardworking, it's almost sometimes force, or as I said, maybe a life-changing experience. And, and this is very uh, subjective. It's an opinion of mine. It's not factual. I'm sure there's many things out there that I don't know, and I could be mixing up information. So I don't want someone listening being like, no, wait, I learned it on my own, you know? Um, but with the, with Tom Rose, what makes a good trainer, I always thought to myself, was besides having the information and a good work ethic, is their ability to stay calm in stressful situations and not to get upset and not to get angry and mad. And that's something that a lot of students would struggle with because one of the things that attracted me to the Tom Rose School was they had such a high failure rate. And the reason why that attracted me to the school was because I didn't want to get a certificate that is handed out to people. I wanted to actually know how to train dogs. That was important to me. <clears throat> and so he has a bunch of requirements for the students to pass. And they're real world requirements, but the instructors grade them. So they're not going out and doing it. So, for example, they have to do an AKC novice, AKC open, uh, IGP or Schutzen obedience Schutzen one and Schutzen three obedience routine. They have to do tracking. They have to do scent detection work. They have to do trick training. They have to do a CGC. So there's a lot of requirements that are directed towards real world type things that competitive trainers would be doing. And they have to take two dogs through the program. So two green dogs, most dogs or most students will use puppies because they want to do that imprinting. So they're working the training side, they're working the competition side, they're learning that science of dog training, and they're getting the time to practice and get good with their dogs and getting feedback from the instructors. The side where they get to work with the behavioral aspect of dog training is, well, in the beginning of the school, they spend about two weeks just going over dog training, animal behavioral understanding, being able to read dogs, body language, what different things mean. But once the student proves to a certain level that they're understanding dog training and they can train dogs. He has another business called Doghouse Incorporated, and those are locals within the area that'll have their dogs trained and the students train those dogs mm. once they get to a certain level. So the students do have an opportunity to work with dogs that have behavioral issues that they may not have otherwise without that opportunity. And that was something when I was a student, I was, they call them IKTs in kennel training. And I would always say, can I have another IKT? Can I have another IKT? I need as many as possible. But going back to Tom Rose, sorry, my ADD was kicking in a <laughs> little bit. Good. I would buy the agility equipment, and I don't remember what I was doing over there. But Tom Rose comes walking up behind me, and what he would always do was he would have um, all the photos of all the students, and he'd put it on like a checklist, and then he could come up to you and he can go, Tom, and then... <laughs> And you do that in the beginning for about a week until he learned everyone's name. So I see him, but I'm not looking at him. I know he's behind me and I'm thinking to myself, did I do something wrong? Am I going to get in trouble, right? Still that military kind of mentality. And I see him looking through the photos and he looks at me, looks at the photos and he goes, Nay. I'm like, yes, Tom. <laughs> and he, is that agility equipment broken or is it just bent? And I look at it and it was broken. It was just cracked up and it was you know, he makes them with PVC pipes and stuff. And I said, hey, Tom, it's broken. And he goes, well, that's why we use PVC pipe. We just replace it. And he walked off like a jolly walk. I'm like, that is awesome. I love that response. 
And then another time that I remember very clearly, he was teaching my class when I was a professional student, what he likes to call the ook command. So the ook command, and he got it because that's the command for track in German, it's suk. So when he would track, he could say ook to the dog to kind of cue him to indicate if the dog wasn't doing it on his own once the, the dog got to the article. So that was like a little trick of his. And the way that he would teach it is he would use negative reinforcement where he would just apply a little bit of pressure on the back of the dog. Once the dog down, he'd release the pressure and reward, right? And so it was very, uh, he used a lot of finesse, so it wasn't forceful. A lot of times when people hear mm. negative reinforcement, they think it's forceful. No, when you teach it right, it's communication. And so he has the class and he goes, I'm going to show you all how to teach an ook. And he had his chihuahua, he had a chihuahua with him. And he had a Malinois too, but he had his chihuahua. And he goes, so I'm going to demonstrate. And he goes, ook. And he puts the dog in an ook and he raises his hand and the dog lifts his head again. And he goes, ook, and does it again. <clears throat> so maybe 10 minutes of this. And then the dog keeps his head there. And he sits and looks at it for a moment. And then he looks up at the class and he goes, and that's how you teach a nook. <laughs> I love this guy. That's I great. love it. Because, I mean, from my experience training with students or training with other trainers, we create the most problems with obedience when we get frustrated. Right. When we get That is where most of the issues come out. And what I always tell my clients, I say, if you're going to use corrections, which I never force any tools on my clients. I know you don't either. And I know you use remote collars. I use remote collars as well. They're the safest, most effective, most humane tools we can use if we do it correctly. It's all about application and the process that I have. So as I said before, I do a very systematic approach to my training. First, I, I do the communication channels, uh, same way that you know Michael Ellsworth, Mickey, a lot of these amazing trainers do. I teach them the markers the sound that predicts one of the four quadrants of opera conditioning, primarily used mostly for positive punishment, or I'm sorry, positive reinforcement, not positive punishment, positive reinforcement. So like your yes or your good or your click, right? Then I teach the dogs how to follow leash pressure and I get them to understand that because that's another tool that we can use to communicate with them. I teach them how to follow a lure. Once I have all that down, then I start teaching the dogs the commands. Once the dog knows everything, then I can start implementing corrections if I want to get to that level of reliability. And I always tell my clients, if you're going to use corrections, if you decide to cross that line, never ever as, uh, you know, some trainers call it social pressure. I like to call it making a correction personal, never making a correction personal, because when we make it personal, that's when we often start to get the results from the dog where they hunker down and the ears go back and they become very nervous being around the trainer because they don't know if the trainer is going to get upset and frustrated. Mm. Mad. The dog feels like they can't control that situation, which that falls under the category of opera conditioning, right? A dog that understands that their behavior has an effect on their environment. If they don't believe they control the, the environment, they don't know how to stop a correction from happening. They don't know how to prevent a correction from happening. And this loose cannon who's always getting angry and upset, mm. you're creating more problems than what you're going to be fixing. And when I was going through the school as a student, the instructors always were very big on that. Don't get mad at your dogs. Don't get upset. Don't yell at them. Don't get frustrated. If you get frustrated, go play fetch with the dog. Do something to where if you are frustrated, the dog's going, oh, we're going to play fetch. We're using that same concept of classical conditioning of predicting something that the dog enjoys. So what I always like to 
And, you know, a lot of this I learned from the school. A lot of it I learned from Michael's, right? There's a lot of different resources that I learned my training from. I try to break things down in the easiest way possible. So for obedience, I always tell my clients, we have two issues when it comes to obedience, at least two subcategories that fall under obedience. A dog not doing something we ask them to do and a dog not staying in a state. When we have behavioral issues, we have five subcategories that fall under behavioral issues. Now, these can be very complex as well, but I try to make things as simplified as possible. So we have dangerous behaviors. We have destructive behaviors. We have fear-based behaviors. We have behaviors that are aggressive. A lot of times those two go together. And we have behaviors we just don't want a dog to perform. I always tell people when it comes to a fear-based behavior, never use a physical correction to try to stop that fear-based behavior. Because if we do, we are basically solidifying that fact in the dog's mind and we make the issue worse. If a dog's afraid and we go, no, do this, and we correct the dog, now we just showed the dog like, yeah, guess what? You're, you should be afraid, right? When it's dangerous or destructive behaviors, I'm kind of curious how you approach dangerous and destructive behaviors. I tell clients, at least the way that I like to do it is I just, I correct it. I use positive punishment right away from the very beginning to remove that from the dog's repertoire because I don't want a dog chasing cars. I don't want a dog eating out of a trash can. I don't want a dog drinking out of the toilet bowl. I don't want a dog chewing furniture or wires or digging. These things that are dangerous, destructive, I'd rather correct it the very first time the dog does it. They never do it again, and I don't have to worry about it. And when we're looking at dangerous and destructive behaviors, more often than not, as you know, they're self-reinforcing behaviors. The behavior itself feels good to the dog. It's fun to eat out of the trash can. Digging is a great sensation. I love to do it. I'm going to keep digging. So when we're dealing with dangerous or destructive, I tell clients, I'm like, we have two main ways of dealing with that. One, we either correct it, we remove it from the dog's repertoire, so the motivation not to receive the correct the motivation to do the bad behavior. Number two, if you don't want to use a correction, then you have to prevent the dog from practicing it. I had a client recently, their dog was destructive, would chew up furniture when they left. They didn't want to crate the dog, which I tell people crate training is house training. We're teaching the dog not to go potty in the house and we're teaching the dog not to do behaviors in the house that we don't want them to do. Once your dog is house trained, they don't have to be in a crate anymore if you don't want them to be in a crate. It's just, it's a, it's a means to an end. And so they didn't want to create the dog, which, as I said, I never make a client use a tool if they don't want to use it. And they didn't want to correct the dog. They said, we absolutely will not be using positive punishment. So they were willing to use positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, negative punishment. But they didn't want to use positive punishment. I said, OK, no problem. Well, when you leave the house, your two options are either going to be let your dog rip things up or prevent the dog from doing it somewhere. Mm -hmm. So they they muzzle train the dog. And so when they leave, they put the muzzle on and on a long enough timeline, the dog's going to lose interest and they're not going to do it anymore. So that will work. It just takes much longer. Right. And then I tell people, like, if you're dealing with fear and aggression, usually the best way to do that is to build trust, build rapport and work on classical or um, counter conditioning and desensitization. Right. We take what the dog is afraid of and we make it predict something different. An example I love to use is like a vacuum cleaner. Right. Oh, my dog's afraid of the vacuum. OK, well, let's break the vacuum down into the smallest pieces, introduce each piece one at a time and reward the dog. Then slowly connect it together, reward the dog. Now we got the full vacuum. We move it. We reward the dog. We turn it on. We turn it off. We reward the dog. So 
we're same with fireworks or anything a dog is afraid of, right? We start at the lowest level. Uh, protection trainers, right? When they're doing gunfire, they're not firing the pistol day one right next to the dog. That's a good way to create fear. We're going to do it far away and we're going to pair it with something the dog likes. Mm-hmm. So then the, oh, this is awesome. This means we're playing tug. This means I get to bite my favorite guy in the bite suit. I love doing this. This is awesome. And then when we're looking at behaviors, we just don't want a dog to perform. I like to use negative reinforcement with that. So when I teach leash pressure, I always tell people, think about it as whatever comes first is what the dog is learning. And what I mean by that, the the approach that I use, like I said, very systematic. Every dog I work with, I teach the markers. So, you know, some people call it loading the markers, charging the markers. Uh, I like to use, uh, I think Michael L says engagement training. That's what I like to call it. Then I teach the dog how to follow a lure. And I love when people go, my dog's not food motivated. Like every dog is food motivated. If we had one place that every dog had to go to to eat, every dog would go there. That means every dog is food motivated. So I have a way of familiar with um, Jim Quick. He's this brain guy. He's awesome. When he was younger, someone, uh, one of his teachers said, oh, that's the kid with the broken brain. He had an injury. And so he devoted his entire life on learning how to learn. So he teaches all these really cool ways to retain information. And the way that I remember food for my clients is I think about that restaurant, right? So I'm like, if there was one restaurant where your dog had to eat, they would go there. So there's one, your dog's food motivated. When I'm going to train a dog, I want them to be hungry, right? So I imagine a table and I'm the waiter or server. And I come over and there's one dog on one side and he's got a big belly and maybe a half empty beer and a bunch of chicken wings that have been eaten up. And he looks like he's in a food coma. I'm not training him right now. The other dog is sitting there. He's got a fork and knife. He's hungry. He's ready to go. So I present him with a menu. I go, here's the menu. He starts selecting different options. I go, well, let's start with your kibble because that's the easiest to start with. I give it to him. If he likes that, great. So when we give it to him, we watch the reaction, right? They don't like it, then maybe I'm going to try cheese or maybe I'm going to try hot dogs or something else. So if the dog eats and I get a good response, excellent. And then I have what I like to call the backup plan. So as you know, when you train a dog, right, you always want to end on that high note. It doesn't happen often, but sometimes if I'm training a dog, maybe I mess up and I go, you know, a minute longer than I should have. One of the most common mistakes that dog trainers make is one more rep, one more rep, one more rep. And so I have what I call my dessert. If I start to notice that, oh, shoot, the dog's motivation is going down, I have that one higher value treat, not super high value. I'm not going to give the dog steak and raise his pay grade by, you know, five levels, but I'm going to add a little bit higher value end on a good note, get a good sit or good down sessions done. So now the dog wants to come back and they're more motivated the next time they train. So every dog is food motivated. So we do that engagement training. So what I was getting at, sorry, is whatever comes first, I tell the client, that's what the dog's learning. So during engagement training, the first thing that we do is The dog looks at us, we say the marker, yes, click, good, whatever, and then we deliver the treat. So what comes first? The sound, the yes, the good, the click. So that's what the dog's learning. Whatever comes after that, the treat is what is reinforcing what comes first. So then in step two, when I'm teaching a dog a lure, what am I teaching the dog? The lure. So the lure comes first. I lure the dog, they follow it, yes, I give the dog the food. So now I'm teaching the lure. Then when I teach leash pressure, leash pressure comes first. I apply the pressure, right? And what I tell people, when we do leash pressure work, what we're doing is we're presenting a problem to the dog. We're saying, here's a problem. Mm -hmm. Good luck figuring it out. 
So we have two options. We apply the pressure and dogs have that classical opposition reflex and we wait to see if the dog figures out. The problem with that option is it does become mildly stressful. If the dog doesn't know to go with the pressure, what do they do? They, re, re, they hunker in a position, they wait and they wait. And the two rules with negative reinforcement is once it's turned on, it can't be turned off until they comply. And the moment they comply, it instantly has to be turned off. So when I was training, I, I realized I would have dogs that would hunker in position. They wouldn't move for minutes. And so I thought to myself, well, if I present the, 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 the problem to the dog, can I give them the answer? And turns out you can't. So I apply the pressure that comes first. And then I use the food lure that I established in step two. So I lure the dog. Now the dog moves forward. I turn off the pressure. I give him the food. And what I do, because I'm bad at pairing, and, and as we talked about, that's overshadowing. I put the food hand behind my back. I apply the leash pressure. The dog feels the pressure. Then I bring the food out. After enough of those, pressure means lure, which means food, which means happy dog, no pressure. Mm -hmm. So I'm working on the solution when I present the problem. Then after I teach the dog to follow the leash, then I start adding the command. So that is what I, that's my step four. So now when I do step four, what I always tell people is don't think of a command as a command when you're first teaching it. Think of it as a question. If I go to a brand new dog and I go, sit, what I'm really doing is I'm saying, hey, buddy, do you know what to do when I say sit? And the dog looks up at me and goes, I, no, I don't know what to do. But then he looks up and what does he do? He sits. Mm -hmm. And then the person, oh, I taught sit. No, your dog was looking, made a noise. But when we ask our dogs to perform a behavior, right, I see it as a question. And then the physical cue that gets the dog to do the behavior is the answer. So I go sit, and the dog's like, I don't know what to do. And then I lift up or down, and the dog's like, ah, I don't know what to do. And then I lure to the ground. So I ask a question, then I give them the answer. And I teach all the behaviors with the lure. So it's fun, it's exciting, it's motivating for the dog. Then after that, I start teaching the stay. And the way I like to do the stay is, you know, as you know, you have the commanded stay or you can do the implied stay. I've always liked the implied stay because being at the Tom Rose School, they teach the implied stay because they do schutzen, right? And one mm -hmm. of the exercises is a walking sit in motion or a running stand in motion. So you have to run and go stand and the dog stands and you keep going. So that's that implied stay. So once I put a dog in a commanded position, I'm like, you have to stay there until I release you. So once I start, I tell people, you want to use that terminal marker, the sound that means release and reward. So that way you can reward the dog for doing the behavior, but you can release them and you're not worried about the stay. After I teach all those behaviors and I go to the stay, when I put the dog on the commanded position, when they break the position, as I said earlier, I, I tell people that a marker by definition has to predict one of the four quadrants of opera conditioning. I use the word wrong as my marker for leash pressure. So when the dog breaks the position, I go wrong. I calmly walk to the dog, grab the leash, place them back on. Now, when we know that that's negative reinforcement, what are we teaching the dog? Well, we're not teaching the dog to stay because when the dog breaks and I say wrong and I use negative reinforcement, I'm reinforcing the behavior of going back to the platform or the stay when I say wrong. And because of that, we're teaching the dog what to do when we turn on pressure, how to turn it off and how to prevent it from happening. But it doesn't teach the dog not to it doesn't teach the dog necessarily to stay. It teaches them to go back when we say wrong. I do that enough times up until the point where the dog breaks the position. I say wrong and the dog goes, all right, I got it. Mm -hmm. And then once they do that, then I look at my success rate. I say is my dog having at least an 80% success rate? When I ask a command or a, 
a question? Are they giving me the answer 80% of the time, which is the physical behavior? And when they break the, the stay and I say wrong, are they going back at least 80% of the time? When they do that, then for that final stage in reliability, that's when I would add a correction. And I tell people, anytime we add a correction, we have to give the dog the answer. So the way that I do it, if a dog is going to get corrected, I use the word no as my marker for positive punishment. So if I'm using a leash pop or, or anything like that, the dog breaks the position. Now, instead of saying wrong, I say no. I walk to the dog. I give them a correction. I recommand what I want them to be in, down, and then I assist them. So I always tell people it's no or whatever word you want, correction, recommand, and then assist. And they're like, well, what do you mean by assist? You give them the answer. And the reason why when we do start adding corrections, contrary to what some people might think, even no matter how well the trained it, the dog is trained, it's going to create a little bit of stress. Some dogs are going to create more, some it's going to create less. And I don't know about you, but when I'm stressed out, my brain does not work as well. But when I'm feeling good, it works better. So I always give the dog the benefit of the doubt. I say, I know you know it, but I'm going to help you do it anyways. And I started doing that because one of my students years ago, he was using a remote collar and he had the dog in the sit front position and he wanted to get the dog to go into the heel position. So he wanted to do that flip finish. And he told the dog, he goes, heel, and the dog doesn't do it. The dog jumps a little bit and he goes, nope, and shocks the dog. And he says, heel, and the dog doesn't do it. Nope, shock, heel, nope, shock. And I looked at him and I said, hey, it's probably a good idea if you show the dog what you want him to do. And he looked at me and he's like, the dog knows what I want him to do. I said, clearly not, unless mm -hmm. he's corrected. And I highly doubt the dog is enjoying that, so you need to show them. So that, as I was saying before, sorry, I kind of went on a, a tangent, but that's how I like to approach it because that's my systematic kind of outlook. So if it's this, I know I need to do this. If it's obedience, I know I need to do this. If it's dangerous, I need to do this. If it's fearful, I need to build it. And anytime I'm working with a dog, as you do as well, is building that trust, building relationship, which that brings me to a question that I have, something that I always done. And you know, when you, when you start your business, uh, you have other like dog trainers, no dog trainers. We, we, we all know each other. And sometimes you might be criticized for maybe a business uh, decision that you make. One that I've been criticized for is you can't necessarily guarantee results, but you can guarantee satisfaction. I'm a true believer in that. I will do my best to always make sure my clients are satisfied. And I guarantee satisfaction or you don't pay. And I've had friends tell me that's stupid. Why is that stupid? I want my clients to feel comfortable and confident that they're going to be able to be satisfied with what is being provided instead of, well, what if it doesn't work? If I'm not happy, then I'm just kind of stuck with what I have. Sorry, I had another question I was going to ask you, but then I forgot when, once I went into that. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. So, But what, what are your thoughts on that approach? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's, it's tough because, you know, I've just learned – in the beginning, like I said before, because what I do is so involved with my passion and my love for helping people and helping dogs. Uh, and even to this day, you know, last year I'd say, oh, you know, I learned so much the year before and I'm always learning. So I think I'm, I was more naive than I am now. And that means that there's still shitty people out there that are going to do things like it's the type of people that eats the whole plate of food and then says, yeah, this was terrible. We're not paying for this. Right. You know, and, and, 
taking in so many dogs and working with so many people, we see the the good and the bad and the ugly out of out of a lot of people, and it's really unfortunate because um, businesses, you know, no matter how big or how successful they are, we all, especially in the dog world, anyway, in my opinion, like we we just love what we do and we're trying so hard to help, and so I, you'll just you know you'll run into people you'll train their dog and they will do everything that they paid you to do. And then they'll say at the end, well, there is this satisfaction guaranteed. And, you know, I really wanted to put a down payment on this and yeah, Nate, uh, I'm not really satisfied, buddy. I'm going to need my money back. And no, and you're looking at the dog and you're looking at them. You're like, what the, you just left a good review. Your dog, you know, is off leash trained. You did everything. I even have it. I even have what, what? And they're like, mm, yeah, just, Yeah you know, CC is my email is, is my attorney and we'd really like an email per your, uh, you know, your, your, your website advertising on satisfaction. And so for me, you know, I, we, the other thing is, is too, is like, I, that's, it's, it's like the literal backing of my no bad dogs brand is like, look, I'm going to bring the horse to the water, but I cannot make you drink no matter, no matter what I do. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you came in and that, and again, like going, going back to what you were talking about earlier about like all that stuff, all the important stuff that you just mentioned about teaching dogs, like the foundation and having that, um, you know, that, uh, that those five things, like I never get any time to do that. I have th- at the most I will ever work with a dog in a person is two and a half days ever. That's it. And I've been doing that for the last five years. And that's my time frame. I have that amount of time to make a change. Um, before that, when I was helping with board and trains, I had more time, but I never, like, I never, ha- like, if I, if I had an opportunity to, like, dive them through that traditional, like, here's the things, here's this, here's that, it, I would spend, you know, the first consultation, I'm like, I need you, just walk your dog. Let me just see what's going on. And so anyway, so I think that there's, you know, the satisfaction is something that as a business owner, I would be careful with just because there's so many people out there, man, like no matter how good you did with their dog and no matter how like those conversations and you're having a good time and it's great. And then you get that email and you're like, what the frick, what are you talking about? I'm so confused. And you're talking to your anybody that had watched you work with that remember that dog that was doing so good and they, they just sent me an email and they're not satisfied and you're like what and then you know you kind of so for me it's just like it's it's more of understanding that the more people i work with the more you have to guard yourself mm-hmm. unfortunately and so anyway so that that's just my two cents on that that if, if I, I if i were to offer that like satisfy my trainers would be like dude nope we're not doing that we're not doing that because, because again, like the other thing is, is when we have a contract with people, when they come in, we'll tell them like, Hey, especially our board and trained dogs. Cause we've run into this. I can tell you a story. Let me tell you this story. And this will give you some context and reinforcement of what I'm talking about. We have a contract that basically says like, Hey, we are going to, to work on the things that you have said that you are hiring us for, you know, okay. Whether it's leash walking or off leash or whatever. And by the time you leave, your dog is going to be doing those things. And if your dog isn't at that point, typically, unless it's like a way understatement where they're like, no, my dog knows the basics. They sign up and their dog knows nothing. We will, we will comp that. We're like, Hey, can we keep your dog for an extra week? We want, we want to do some fine tuning. Um, and then even when they go home, we guarantee our training 
but we don't guarantee that your dog is going to listen to you forever because if you go home and do all the same shit that created this problem, that's on you. Cause you, yeah. you're the one who created this anyway, you know, cause your dog came in in three days is an angel with dog people. But we do guarantee that if you, if your dog does regress, which is natural and normal, you could come back in and we could tune you up. No worries. But one time we had this uh, dog that came in and we worked on all this stuff, right? So j- just think, think about like healing, break, sitting, there's all the basic foundation. And so when they were leaving, they they got all their beds and this dog was i mean just a, a a gem just a just like a nice dog like just chef's kiss and when they were leaving they put the six fish so we have four foot training leashes like biothane leashes they put their six foot back on nylon leash uh and then the dog just was so excited to see him and and the dog pulled to the car and they took a video of it and they sent us an email and they said hey you know our dog pulled to the car and we just taught the dog traditionally boundaries thresholds this is a door i have the leash i'm in charge you're not what are we doing here pay attention engage look at me ask for permission heal is heal break is break and they just grabbed all their stuff and kind of rushed their dog to the car and the dog was like this is what we do with mom and dad as we you know so my point is is we got this email and they we we paid them back we had to we went to court for it mm-hmm. uh and i and i don't like talking about things like that because it's discouraging but i think it's important to just you know give you my honest feedback on some of that stuff because we we're, we're all sitting there like can you believe this and we have videos of this dog like just i mean bur- this was long time 5 6 years ago long time ago mm-hmm. but anyway so that would be like my worry is like the more you, you know, you are going to have a few bad apples. Of course, most people from my experience are good people. You know, most people, you provide the service that you provide, you do an excellent job. And if they follow just what you said, I mean, that's spot on. I mean, you know, dog trainers hear it every single day because every client does the same joke, right? One is, can you teach wife or can you teach my kids or something like that? That's one. Another one is you're training the human, not the dog. Yeah. It's like, yes, well, we are training the dog, but we do have to train the human because, you know, Tom Davis can have your dog for a year and make that dog perfect and give it back to you. And if you don't properly enforce it, just like you said, the dog goes, oh, this is what I do with mom and dad. Off we go. Mm-hmm. I have a similar story where and and this is one of the reasons uh when i would do stay in trains or doggy boot camp i i used to offer potty training i stopped offering it because of this one client i tell people how to potty train but i'm not going to guarantee it because dogs are situational and so this client had a really big beautiful house and it was a really small multi cute cutest dog though (laughs) but they had a really big house and the dog went potty everywhere And they said, I would like you to potty train the dog while you do the obedience training. I said, great, no problem. And they wanted the dog to use like a litter box kind of deal, but not a litter box because of uh, cat litter everywhere. So what we did was we got one of those uh, storage containers. It was maybe two feet by three feet roughly, and it came off the ground maybe four inches. And the reason why I did that is because what happens when you are using a potty pad, which I usually advise against, but some people want to do it. And if they want to do it, I'll teach them how to do it. If they have the potty pad, a lot of dogs will smell it and pee or you know, do number one or two, and they're not on the pad. They smelled it and they're going off the pad. So to prevent that, 
I would put the pads inside the container. So the dog would jump into the container to go to the bathroom, which would remove the possibility of missing the pad. I also taught the dog how to ring a bell to go outside. Now, when we teach a dog to ring a bell to go outside, they learn the bell means to go outside. So they're going to ring the bell to go outside. It doesn't always necessarily mean that I'm going to ring the bell to go to the bathroom. Now, there is an additional process to mm -hmm. teach them, but it takes more time. Like what I, because I've had some clients that want to do that. And I said, well, when the dog rings the bell, put them on leash, take them to where you want to go to the bathroom, wait three minutes. If the dog doesn't go to the bathroom, take them back inside, put them in the crate, wait 20 minutes, take them back out. If he goes to the bathroom, yay, good boy, and then let him play outside. So then he learns ringing the bell means I better go to the bathroom. And that does work, but it takes a good amount of time. But long story short, this dog was awesome. I even did obedience with this dog down at Third Street Promenade. Like, it was a little Maltese doing focused heel. I mean, the dog, I love this dog. Such a great dog. And when I brought the dog back, I'm trying to explain what they need to do because the dog's not generalized. He's been at my place and been at third place. He thinks my place, you don't go to the bathroom inside. This house mm -hmm. is big, multiple rooms, great. And so I said, you're going to have to do, and I gave them a step-by-step -step process to follow. And they go, well, that's what we hired you for. I said, unless you hire me to live at your house for a couple weeks, you're going to have to do this. And then a week later, they called me up. They're like, they said, the dog's still going potty everywhere and not doing what they want. And I offered them a, them a refund, but they said, no, they didn't want the refund. But I said, you, you have to fall after that complaint. That's when I decided I'm not going to tell a client that I'm going to potty train their dog anymore since it's such a situational behavior. And just like you said, oh, this, this is how I act with mommy and daddy. And if they don't reinforce the rules, it all goes out the window. Even if the dog has done six months of training or nine months of training, it mm -hmm. still goes out. One thing that I would do, and this is something I want to mention earlier and I had forgotten, but it just came back to my mind. When we're training a dog, right, we have to look at different things. So we look at our equipment, what equipment do you use? Mine's very basic, martingale collar, leash, vest, and treats or whatever I'm using to feed the dog. That's going to be the basics. Now, I will use remote collars for off-leash reliability. And there are, I like to use flexi leads or retractable leads when I'm teaching recall so I can get a distance call dog to me and I'm not having to reel in a long line. But those are the main tools. I also recommend for people to have a notebook with what they want to teach their dog, right? Their goals and things like that. But then the next one is environment. What environment are we going to train the dog in? What is the best environment? And I, I hate to bring up his name again, but Michael Ellis has an, a great analogy for it. He goes, if you have a brand new dog, you need minimal distractions in order to train. And a good thing to compare that to, and I'm paraphrasing, so I don't say it as good as he does. But if you're trying to teach a child something, a young child, and the TV's on, and you got dogs running around the house and other kids playing, good luck trying to teach them something because there's too many distractions in the environment. Sure. As they get better and they become more proficient, yes, we can add more competitive motivating factors because every dog, their behavior is driven by motivation, prevents something unpleasant, access something pleasant, or the behavior itself is fun, right? That's self-reinforcing behavior. So when I would get fearful dogs in for stay and train, I did what I called an adjustment period. Now, I didn't charge clients for the adjustment period only because I didn't want my clients to think that I was intentionally ripping them off. You know, like trying to get boarding feet like, oh, your dog's still adjusting. We got another week. Yeah. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to 
make it part of the program. Most dogs adjustment period would be a day or not even a day. Like they show up, it's a cute puppy, happy to see everybody, no bad experiences. And that dog's ready to start right away. But a dog that's really fearful, I had the adjustment period because I learned if I started a dog in a training program with me, like doing obedience, which is different than approaching the behavioral issue. If I'm trying to teach the dog obedience, I want the dog to enjoy it. So if I start it when the dog is afraid of me, now the dog is going to associate that negative feeling with the training and I'm not going to be able to make the 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 goals that I want or the goals that the owner has with the training because I started when the dog was fearful and now the dog doesn't like doing the obedience, right? Again, which is different from approaching the behavioral issues and doing counter conditioning because day one you can start working counter conditioning i just don't want to confuse people who are listening but with that i want to make and i will start so when i say the adjustment period is strictly for obedience so i will start working on counter conditioning right away building the trust hanging out with the dog i had this client once if you google search uh, and sorry i know we've been going for a little while now i'm having such a good time talking to you so i don't know what your your time schedule is uh, so feel free to cut me off anytime. But I had this, it was, if you Google search Frankie inside edition, it was a bull terrier and they called it the devil dog or the demon dog. And if you look at the footage, the dog is jumping towards the camera, snarling, and it says it had bitten the owner multiple times. So they sent me footage of how the owner was working with the dog and, and no fault of hers, you know, she wasn't a professional trainer and the dog was more of an extreme case than the average dog, but it wasn't a super extreme case, not by any means. The dog's aggression came out because of confusion. The timing was off. So when the dog should have been rewarded, the dog was being punished mm. and the dog been, uh, at least adjusted or given a different path. The dog was then rewarded or corrected so the dog was getting mixed information and the dog was very confused i think in child psychology they call it burnt child syndrome which means you know a child that's raised in a household with different rules mm. and it's which as you know dog training consistency is one of the most important things so i did a stay and train with that dog essentially i had it for multiple weeks i don't remember how long but once the dog knew okay you're cool you understand how to communicate with me. And we're talking at the same level of understanding that the dog had. It was a completely different dog, night and day. Like the dog is doing parkour in the backyard. The dog happy is coming up to me or she's coming up to me, licking my face and whatnot. So knowing those little details is important to transfer that information, of course, over to the owners in order for them to continue that when the dog does go home. With that being said, I'm kind of curious as to what was two, – two questions. What was your hardest dog that you had to work with? And what was – you know what? I think you already answered the hardest client was probably the last one. Mm. <laughs> what was the hardest dog you had to deal with? What was the case where, you know, if, if you had, let's say, a, a dog graduate requirement for trainers where you could – replicate the same dog and go here if you can handle this dog i know you're ready mm. right what dog would that be <clears throat> it's a good question so i think yeah the, as far as the clients go i mean there's just those types of clients it's not that particular client it's just like those types of clients where they just right. they don't get it like they they're unappreciative they don't get it they're just like here you know i'm like you could give me a briefcase full of money right now and 
I can't help you because um, it's not your dog's only going to behave around me and that's it. And that there's no point in that. So it's just those types of clients. And then I think, you know, there's, there's some cases that come to mind. Like there's one that continues to still go viral. Um, that is continuing to also being taken out of context, of course, because that's what the internet does. But there's this German shepherd named Scott that's in a muzzle and I have like a catch pole on him, and I'm, and there's so much context that's not in the video, you know, as the internet how dare the internet do that? <laughs> right. That's the, your number one video though, I think, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's probably, I don't think it's my number one. I don't know. I don't know, but it's, it's something that gets, I still see it every day. Like people tag me all the time. Oh, this is, this is, you know, channels will take German shepherd, like shepherd attacks trainer during aggressive behavior training. Yeah. Yeah. That's your, that's your number one, 3.4 million views. Yeah. Well, yeah. On TikTok, it got like, 25 million views or something like it just goes crazy everywhere and but people still use it every day for their accounts Mm. because that's what the internet does whatever anyway my point is is like a dog like that um you know if you watch that video and you want to if you're interested you know it's just it's just one of those cases where i told the whole room hey this is what's happening this dog is genetically there's something there's a screw loose there's some retardation going on this is not normal I had, th- I think I had two different students from the animal behavioral college in there watching. I had my client because I told my staff, I go, you guys want to watch something interesting? Come watch this because you're never going to, you won't see this again this year. These happen like once a year, we'll get a dog in like this. Um, but I'm not even going to say that dog because that's not fair because that's not a real dog. That's, that's like a, that's, that's just a, you know, that's a lottery of like what you're going to get. It's, those are things that you'll never probably see again as a trainer, likely. Anyway. Um, so there's that video that like just comes to mind. Cause so many people will be like, Oh, remember that dog? It's kind of like, that's not normal. I'm like, it's not even like, like if I ever, I'm going to be honest with you. If I ever actually got bit by a dog and we were filming and it was like something that like actually like you know I was, I was actually bit like where i needed stitches or i need i'd i would never first of all put that out to the public because i would never do that that's like i wouldn't do that to my client i wouldn't do that to the dog um because that's my job you know but there's certain situations where i almost get bit or i get i get hit with a muzzle or i'm like yeah that's that's just good content you know like that's good to see what the dog will actually do but i was thinking about that the other day there was a dog that actually um that bit me it was the worst bite i've ever gotten and it didn't break skin it just bruised me really bad on the leg um we're we're not going to put that scene out we're going to put the video out but we're not going to mention you know so i'm not going to say which dog or anything but there's so anyway i'm just saying like in those situations I, I try to tell people that um that particular dog is not a good candidate for anybody to be handling because it's really like anyway but there's a dog that if I were to guess, like if I were, if I were to say, okay, you've, I don't know, man, it's hard to say. I will, I wouldn't, I'll say that one of the most challenging dogs that I've worked with recently, but I, but I wouldn't give this dog to my staff likely <laughs> was the Dutch shepherd that I worked with. I think last year, um, he's on my channel as well. He's a working, he's like a working line KMPV Dutchie. And dad is actually like the most qualified handler likely for this dog outside of a professional dog trainer. He like runs this crazy FBI like organization 
he like merged the FBI or some something with the cops locally, and he has this really crazy division. So he's from the military. He's very committed. He really wants to get better. But this dog was very challenging to break through because he was an intact working line duchy that comes from a history of also not giving an F. And he just was like, do don't tell. He's he was one of those dogs that in the beginning he probably was he got he got away with something and he was like click and that's it he was like this is how life's gonna go for me he'd get up and he'd he'd wrap you with his arms like this and he'd growl right here behind your neck and like spit on you and just let you know like don't move or i'm gonna kill you (laughs) and so he did that a couple times to me and he was always yeah yeah he was always muzzled we did work him a little bit without the muzzle but you know, again, I'm not trying to prove a point, I'm trying to make a difference. So we quickly always put the muzzle back on whenever I was handling him anyway. But he was the most consistent. He was like, no, he, to me, it was like a lot of dogs who come to me for behavioral stuff. You see a huge improvement in their behavior when they leave this dog. We saw improvements for sure. The owners were really happy and had confidence moving forward and they had a ton of new things, but I, I was like, not fulfilled. I was like, I want that dog for longer, but I actually ended up calling Forrest about that. And the video goes over what we did. We just did scatter feeding at the end. And he just, he would not, he would like, no, I'm killing that dog, killing that dog. I'm killing that dog. And we threw everything at this dog and he was just like, nope. So we ended up scatter feeding and not necessarily avoiding the situation, but we, we we were proactive instead of reactive to the conflict of the reaction. So we said, Hey, do this instead. The dog's like, Oh, what dog? Boop. Cause his drive for food was stronger than his ballsy, no pun intended. Like, who are you? Let me check your ID. Um, so that was, um, that was that dog for me, I would say in the last couple of years that I can remember, I'm sure there's other ones, but was he uh, aggressive towards dogs and people or just people? He was dogs, but I'm not sure if he was aggressive towards them. Well, he was, he was his main, his primary um, problem was he was reactive towards dogs. And if you were handling the leash and he wanted to get to such dog, mm-hmm. he would then, he would climb the leash and just literally look at you and snarl at you and try to try to bite you. He'd bloody your face up if you didn't get him off you. And he does, but here's the thing is he didn't care about corrections. He didn't care about whatever, but he would be, he was consistent. Some dogs you can find that are kind of pushy and you correct them, you correct them. They're like, all right, whatever, man. And you, you basically just, you do compulsion. They're like, I want to, but I'll respect it. And that's, that's sometimes the only option with certain dogs. Cause they're like, uh, this is what I want to do. Like, you know, we see this in Australian shepherds and collies and uh, border collies that, you know, they want to kill and chase and the, the, the cats and the rabbits and whatever. And that's compulsion. Like there's nothing you can do to take that away. You're not telling that fish not to swim. And with him, he just, I've never seen a dog. It was like thinking at a human level. It was like the villain in the movie. You knew what he was going to do and you're, you're not, you're not changing him. He's like, this is how I am. And so when you, when you'd give him any type of pressure, like if he, if you, if he saw a dog and he reacted to the end of the leash and you just caught him, you didn't even correct him. You just caught him. He'd turn around and let you have it every single time. I mean, we worked with him for three days and he just didn't care, didn't care. So luckily they have the owners that, like I said, are very capable of handling such dog, but if not them, he would have been euthanized. 
It definitely sounds like an extreme case. It sounds like a dominant, aggressive dog, which is very rare. One thing that you said that I, I like that you said is where you mentioned the genetics. Mm-hmm. There are so many people out there for some reason that think or believe that genetics doesn't play a role when it comes to working with dogs. Now, of course, that's the long conversation of nature versus nurture. But nature plays a very big role. I mean, there's a reason why uh, competitive obedience trainers like to use Malinois and why police officers have German Shepherds and Dutch Shepherds and Malinois and, and labs for scent detection and hunting work because genetics plays quite a big role. That case that you were talking about reminded me of a dog that I have had as well. But what's intimidating about that, because even with the muzzle, they will, as you said, they'll aim for your face. They'll try to hit your nose. Mm-hmm. They'll try. And it's it's intimidating. And if we think about like PTSD, for example, right? What is PTSD? It's post-traumatic stress disorder or syndrome. And it's what it does is it changes your behavior in the current timeline based on an experience that you've had in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, I, when I was in the military, I hydroplane my car going 75 miles an hour on the highway. I just lost traction and started sliding. There was nothing I can do. I thought I, that might've been the end for me. I don't even know if I screamed or not. I may have, mm. but after, now I drive in the rain, the rain in the far right lane. I go slower than the the oldest guy there. Mm-hmm. I'm going like 40 miles honking at me. I say that because I had another experience where a dog trainer friend of mine was bit in the face by a protection trained dog. And I was there. I saw it. And the damage was very extreme. It required surgery and all these things. And, and I took this friend to the hospital and when the bandage was taken off, just seeing the Mm. damage, it created like a fear that I didn't have before. Maybe it's a fear. Maybe it's just a respect of what a dog can do. People often don't understand what a dog is capable of doing. So Mm -hmm. when you said, yeah, I had a muzzle on that's smart. (laughs) (laughs) have a muzzle on but not be smartest move and i think a muzzle is something that everyone should teach their dogs as well and some people might say well why my dog's nice and happy well what if your dog gets an injury and you have to take the dog to the vet and the vet the dog thinks that it's the vet causing the pain right having that muzzle is going to help with that but ever since that experience even when i was doing you know protection training so before that experience, I was a certified decoy in PSA, Protection Sport Association. I never decoyed a trial. I got certified and then I never decoyed a trial. And then I became interested in French ring obedience and I started doing our French ring competition in general. And I was training with a local club. That's how I met Bethany Perdome from PH Dogs. And, and uh, her husband is either level two or level three decoy. I mean, awesome trainers, awesome decoys. And when I started doing that, I always had that fear in the back of my my mind. Uh, Jean-Luc, he's the decoy I was talking about, great, amazing trainer. He he would say to me, he's like, you have a fear of the dog. And that's when we were doing protection work because, as you know, at French Ring, the dog can pretty much bite anywhere. And they it's it's almost, you know, that, that battle between decoy and dog. Mm-hmm. The dog, though, right? So, um And a lot of trainers would teach the dogs to bite the chest because it's harder to dodge the chest than it is to prevent the dog from biting the arm or the leg. And we were doing training. I just, 
every time my, my instincts would take over that self-preservation and I couldn't do the training to get the dog to bite my chest. And it makes me think back to a dog that I had very similar to what you're talking about. But this dog was what I like to call a bluffing dog or a bluffer or a faker. Yours sound like the real deal. Like that dog would for sure bite. This dog was a, a bluffer, a faker, right? And the dog was two years of age. It was. It, it looked like Chance from Homeward Bound. You seen that movie? Oh yeah. Just like that dog. The dog looked like he worked out more than, uh, you know, take any bodybuilding. Dog was jacked, and the client calls me up and says, "One of those situations. You're the last hope." I come down, the dog had, had been with a trainer when he was a puppy and it wasn't a real trainer. Now I never bash on people or trainers or anything like that. Say names. It's not in my uh, toolbox. I don't think that's cool to do. Uh, but this trainer, so I'm not going to say any names. I don't even remember the trainer's name, but she wasn't a real trainer. Her training business was to promote her rock band. And <laughs> yeah, it's, it was ridiculous, but that's the trainer that this person had hired. And when the trainer was working with the dog, the trainer says, and this was, keep in mind, weak old puppy. The trainer goes, this dog's unfixable, euthanize the dog. Because mm-hmm. I'm not euthanizing my dog. And the problem with something like that is now she goes, well, I went to a professional. Right. The professional unable to fix it. I guess I just have to deal with the problem. When the dog reached full maturity, now it was a really big problem. And when you would put the leash on, the dog would bite at the leash, would jump at the leash and would do exactly what you said, would jump up and grab your arm. And his face would be right next to me, snarling. And I remember the first time the dog did that. I had the dog on a walk and he was just over it. He's like, I'm not doing it anymore. Thank God for me, he was a faker. He wasn't really, he was, his, his aggression was to try to control me. Right. Yeah. And so jumps up and stand there. And I'm, I'm like, what do I do in this situation? It was one of the first dogs that I trained outside of graduating from the Tom Rose school. I got him off. I don't remember how I got him off. Maybe I used the leash and I did it very slowly because I didn't want to get bit. It's very intimidating when you have a very big, powerful, strong dog growling right next to your face. And then I was going to put him into a down. So I was going to use um, negative reinforcement where like if you were to push a dog's butt into a sit and I'm pushing down on his shoulder blades and he turns around like he's going to bite my arm. And so once he did that movement, natural reaction, pull away. And sure. I pulled away. And I remember Tom Rose is talking about this once where he says that the dog's not actually aggressive and they're faking the behavior to get a result. You can't respond to it. And it's against our human nature because mm-hmm. of that but you have to stand strong. So I said, okay, all right, I'm going to use the, the pressure, push the dog down into the down position. And I'm not even going to look at the dog because if I look, I'm going to see the reaction and I'm going to respond in, in the incorrect way. So I start to push the dog down. He turns around and puts his whole mouth on my arm, but he doesn't bite again. Thank goodness for me. He was a bluffer and not an actual dominant aggressive dog. I would have been in the hospital and I got him into the down and he looked at me and was like, oh, shit. And then I started working with the dog and just got past that. And the dog was great. The dog was perfect. But in the beginning, you know, thinking about it, if a dog was to do that to me now because of that experience that I had with seeing the amount of damage that can be caused, what I always tell people is respect the dog. You have to respect the dog because they do have way more ability to cause damage than what we often like to think and respect or not. I mean, we should respect the dogs and build that trust and everything. So that's just a different direction, but man, that's, that's a good story though. And Dutch shepherds, they're intense dogs and they're fast. 
Yeah. They're very, they're pretty much, I mean, some people would say they're the same as the Malinois. They just have that brindle coat. Was it a short hair or long hair Dutch Shepherd? Short hair. I just, it's under my, I was just looking at it. It's aggressive Dutch Shepherd tries to, or aggressive Dutch Shepherd attacks me. So you can see it there if you, if you'd like to at some point, but yeah, he was short haired and he was big and he just, but I did mention in that video, um, I talked about dominance and I, and I went over my theory on it and I went over same thing as, you know, how you kind of talked about alpha. It's like, you know, it's just one of those things that sure it may exist in a very small percentage of dogs under certain scenarios and contexts, but the way that it's been thrown around is just crazy. And it's annoying for us to even hear, oh my, we have Mm -hmm. to be alpha, right? What the fuck? What are you talking about? So but in that video, I went over dominance and I, and I jokingly did this scene where I did all these different takes of me saying dominant, 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 something you hear all the time. But, and I kind of went over something along the lines of like, this is a true dominant behavior out of a dog. I, you know, and, and I would go as far as to say it is a dominant dog. He just, he, he tried to do something. And I was like, you can't. And he was like, I'm going to kill you then. I'm literally going to, to kill you or I'm going to hurt you bad enough so you can let me go so then I can go, you know? So that was one of those, yeah, really. And I would say too, just on that, that um, some of the other hardest cases too is when I'm doing live seminars, when I have 75 to 100 people standing there with their phones when an aggressive dog comes out. Those are really hard because not only <laughs> are you doing it live but you're doing it in front of that many people and you're doing it you know with this with the you know when you're see that's where i i try to like go out and help dogs in person because there's not a lot of i shouldn't say that there's some people who can create some really great content working with dogs but then when you actually say hey can i just see you do it in real time it doesn't match up and Mm -hmm. it's and the reason why i'm mentioning that i never would have ever thought about this ever in my life but the amount of people that had come up to me and just been like, I'm so happy that you are who you are in your videos or in your podcast. Because even one of my own employees, her name's Julia. She's a sweetheart. She's great. We all love her. She's great. She tells me even to this day, she's like, I was so nervous to meet you when she applied for the position. She was like, I was so, literally, she's like, I was sick to my stomach meeting you because if you weren't what I thought you were, I would be traumatized because I really respected you as a trainer. And she's like, thank God, you know, and the amount of people that come up to me in my seminars too, that are like, man, that was great. It was cool to see you do your thing, but also understand that it's not a facade. It's like when we watch your videos, we're only just getting a little clip of it. It's not just, you know, so anyway, I was just going to say, as far as like training difficult cases, those are the other hard cases for me sometimes only because there are some people who, don't understand what dogs can do and what they can actually be and the things that happen. And again, like if a dog actually hurt me to a point where I had to go to the hospital or something, knock on wood, I would never even put that in a video or clickbait it or anything. I would, I would do it with a dog that almost does because it's not real. And then the people who think their dog is also aggressive get to watch it and they realize that it's not real. But anyway, those are also, yeah. those are also tough cases. I you- give you or working with that many cases, the aggressive dogs, when somebody reaches me with an aggressive dog, it's always nerve wracking. You know, I'm willing to help them. One thing that I learned, I'm sure you learned this as well. 
or, or maybe you you have a technique that you use to get th- away with doing it. Th- but I avoid going to the client's house when they have an aggressive dog. Mm-hmm. I refuse to go to a house when they have an aggressive dog. They have to meet me in a neutral environment. One time I was going to the client's house that had an aggressive dog. And it, it was uh, it wasn't like a full dominant aggressive dog. So it wasn't like a super rare case. I ended up doing stay and train. The dog was fine. But inside the dog's household it was significantly more confident. I came inside the house and the dog comes running around the corner, running at me full speed, teeth showing this dog's ready to attack me. And luckily uh, one of the, it was either the husband or the son, like older son, like teenager or something that got in the way and stopped the dog. And I was like, that dog wasn't able to make it to me because I would not want to have to deal with that. You know, nobody wants to to fight, you know, have to fight a dog. And the last aggressive dog that I worked with, it was what I call a forward fear aggressive dog. And what I mean by that is the dog was very fearful, but he was the type of dog or she was the type of dog that would go, well, I'm going to neutralize the threat, right? Most fear aggression, you're more likely to get bit when you corner the dog. That's why you never corner a fearful dog. And that's why when you're getting dogs that are fearful out of a kennel, there's a very slow process to do it. Because if you reach in and try to grab them, you're probably going to be bit. And so I had the dog in the yard, in the backyard. I would do the stay and trains at my house. And I turned to go inside. The room that the dog was in was attached to the backyard. And as I walk in, I feel this dog bite my back. The dog bites my back and I'm walking away. I turn around because I knew, well, this room where the dog stayed, the door was closed. So I'm not going to try to run away because what's that going to do? Well, it's going to encourage the behavior. The dog is going to bite me more. So I said, well, my only option is to turn around and stop the dog. And it was a big dog too. And so I turned around, I grabbed the collar. The dog bit my hand when I grabbed the collar and then looked at me. I looked at the dog, stopped biting. I let go. The dog walked away and it was fine after that. But nobody likes to be bit by a dog. There's nothing about that so anything we can do to prevent that from happening is obviously going to be probably one of the more important things and what i always tell people that i work with safety is always priority number one and i could imagine you probably get more extreme cases like that than most trainers though just because strong reputation what you're saying about it's kind of intense doing that work in front of a live audience of 7500 plus people uh it, it makes me think of one of my favorite speeches by Teddy Roosevelt. You may have heard of it before, The Man in the Arena. Hmm. Have you heard it? No. Look it up. Once we finish this, you're the man in the arena. One of the best speeches I've ever heard in my life. And it plays right into what you're doing as putting yourself out there, as showing people what you're able to do, and then doing it in front of a live group of people. So there is no cuts. There is no edits. There is no fooling or tricking with camera. It's the real deal. I think that's awesome that you do that stuff, man. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's 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 the that, that's why I like to do it. That's why we just we finished that US tour and we did London before that and we got plans next year to do some more and it's like it keeps me sharp, you know? It keeps me like it 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 re-encourages me, it reinforces me, it like helps me get better. I'm like, man, if you can do that under those that's so if somebody asked me like, "How do you like tour? How do you like this? How do you like that?" And I was like, "Well, I was like, it's made me so much better. I'm like, imagine waking up and I was like working out with a resistance band on every single day 
I would wake up with problems outside of dog. Like the dogs, that's the thing with my career has been so cool is like the dogs are the easiest part of my, it's like literally like breathing for me. It's like, give me a dog with a very big problem. And it's like breathing for me. I'm just, I'm just, I'm so tapped into it. It's so, it's just in second nature to me. And so everything else was really difficult though. The sleep, the nutrition, the travel, um, the venues, uh, tour managing, uh, the merchandise, the weather, my baby, my wife, my production. I mean, everything was going, every day was a new thing, right? It was a new thing every day. And so I was like, man, if I can, if I can do this at this scale, I'm like, when I get back to my facility, I'm going to be like so on, but I wasn't. I was worse because when I got back to my facility, I I thought that, and then that's where I got nailed by that, by a dog. And, um, like I, like I said before, when I say it was the worst bite I've ever gotten, I've never really been bitten because I'm very cautious. I mean, I only work with dogs that want to try to bite me or have a bite history or look like they want to bite me. And I've never knock on wood. I've been very, very cautious and very, very safe. Um, because if I, and it's not even about being able to say I've never been bitten. It's about if I get bit, then it's going to suck for that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't like, that's, that's the thing, right? Somebody comes, you're the guy, you're the guy, right? That, you know, was referred to you. You've been watching their videos. Wow, that guy. And then I just not paying attention and I'm just goofing off or I lit up a little bit, which is what I thought I did after tour. I just like, you know, and uh, yeah. And I just made a mistake. Like this dog was just, just redirected. And they're like, oh yeah, by the way, and uh, it was fine. And I'm just saying, like, I'm just so cautious. But that anyway. The, made me think of one more thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's really cool about about dog training. You know, for, for people that, whether they're training their own dogs, they want to be a professional dog trainer. One of the things that I love so much about jujitsu is one of the same things that I love so much about dog training. For anyone who does jujitsu, you know, have you done jujitsu before? No, but I've been, I've been really thinking about, I don't have any hobbies for the last 12 years of my life, good 12 years of my life. I've just been obsessed with this. (laughs) So I thought about doing like something that would benefit every part of my life and jujitsu seems like that's it. It's amazing. You should totally do it. Even if you can only get in a couple days out of the week, it's, it's hands down one of my favorite activities aside from dog training. I mean, it's incredible. And one of the things that's so amazing about it is it really brings in that level of mindfulness, right? And what is mindfulness? It's being in the present moment. When you're doing jujitsu, the only thing you're thinking about is jujitsu. And it made me think about this when you said it was that one moment someone distracted you. Mm-hmm. And that's when with dog training, it's very, very comparable to that. When you're training a dog, that's the only thing that's on your mind. You're not thinking about bills. You're not thinking about the emails you have to take care of. You're not thinking about the calls. So when I get my vest on and I get my dog out or the dog that I'm working with, it's the only thing in that moment that I am actively thinking about. And it's such a unique, cool experience as it is with jujitsu when you're sparring with somebody or you're rolling and you're doing that training. It's just an excellent, amazing thing. And I think that's why so many people that do become dog trainers, they get that bug that you have, that addiction, that obsession. I want to do it more. I want to see more dogs. I want to get better. I want to help more dogs. And uh, I think that's a good note right there. Yeah, buddy. (laughs) Cool, man. It's a pleasure talking to you. Uh, appreciate you reaching out. It's great to meet you. And, you know, like I said before, I I, I just kind of, it's not that, I don't have a lot of dog trainers on my podcast 
just because it's not that I don't want to meet new people. It's just because I have my head down and I've had so many people, you know, I just try to keep, I I like to learn. I like to talk to people, but, um, it's, it's, it's nice to be able to talk to somebody, you know, out of pocket, you know, where it's like, I don't know anything about this person and they know very little about me. And so it was a nice, genuine conversation and it was very valuable. I know that my, my, uh, listeners are really going to eat a lot of that. They're getting all that stuff that I, you know, all the traditional, when I say traditional, all the, all your five pillars of how you break things down and reward behaviors and capture behaviors and all that stuff. They're going to really eat that up because I lack that. And, um, so I appreciate you. And then, uh, I'll put your links below, but, um, if you want to just shout out your YouTube or anything else, you, people can find more information about you. That would be cool. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And this has been awesome, man. I've been I've been looking forward to this ever since you confirmed on the email. I'm like, this is going to be a good time. This guy is super smart, incredibly knowledgeable and highly skilled. So I knew this was going to be a lot of fun. So I appreciate you taking me up on collaborating and working together like this. Uh, my channel is Nate Domer. It's my name, N-A-T-E. You start typing S-C-H, it'll usually come up. So Nate Shomer. And my main focus, as I said, is really teaching the science of dog training. I do post sometimes on Instagram and TikTok and Facebook, but and it's all Nate Shomer. But my primary focus has been YouTube. I'm a huge fan of YouTube. I love the platform. I Same. love what they're doing. And I mean, you know, even your channel alone speaks for itself. You know, what are you at? Uh, 776,000 subscribers. I mean, that is one heck of an accomplishment aside from all the dog training stuff that you've done. So, yeah, Nate Schomer, that's how they'll be able to find me. And again, I can't thank you enough. This has been awesome. And I hope at some point we can train together. I know you said you're going to be doing some more in-person stuff in January. Maybe we can collaborate. I'll fly out. I'll bring my two students. I would love for them to be able to see you do some hands-on stuff and maybe produce some more content. I'd love to put some of your stuff on my channel too. Cool. Yeah, man, definitely. All right. I appreciate it. Thanks, Nate. Have a good day, man. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Hey, you as well, brother. I appreciate it. All right. Bye. All right, you guys, you've reached the end of the podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. First question comes from Acorn517. Best dog training podcast. This is by far the best dog training podcast out there. Detailed, answered, and are clear and fit into the real world. My question is: Is do you have? My question for you is: I have a seven-month-old intact Dutch Shepherd with aggression towards people who come into the house. Aggression with nail trims as well as dog aggression. We found a local trainer, but we are trying to decide what would be beneficial for us in more a board and train program or one-on-one sessions. Given the reactivity, what are your thoughts? Um, my thoughts are. If you have a dog that has serious behavioral issues, you should do both. So the question really is here is should it, should you do one-on-ones or board and train? And dogs are projects and some projects are bigger and harder and more challenging and take more time than others. Just that simple. So if you have a dog that's a little bit more of a bigger project or a lot more bigger project, then you need all the help you can get. So I would recommend if you can and you have the means to, I would do both. I would do... Uh, and, and the cool thing about most dog tr- uh, board and train programs like mine is we do follow-ups for free. So um, when we do board and trains, you get free follow-ups for life. Like whenever the dog leaves our facility, you're going to get our support forever. So I think you might be able to have your cake and eat it too there um, by just doing a, doing a board and train. And then hopefully it's a it's a established company that gives you an opportunity uh, to follow up with them. So I would do both. I mean, it just seems like a big project. Um, 
the board and train option is going to give you an opportunity to have a professional get their teeth into the dog, if you will. And that will allow them to say, hey, this is what you got. This is what we're dealing with. Because we have a lot of dogs that come in that their owners are painting the picture in a way that they think the dog is. And then we're able to spend time with the dog and we're like, actually, your dog is not that at all. Your dog is actually these things. So that's my recommendation is probably do the board and train if you're going to do anything um, because that will allow you at least to have somebody really plug into your dog so you know a better idea of what's going on. So that's my answer. All right, next one comes from Brindle Studio. So informative, five-star review. Thank you. I've watched so many of Tom's videos and listened to so many of his podcasts. He has a practical and effective approach to training dogs that reflects his obvious love for them and his interest in giving them a, a forward through their challenges with least confusion and both dog and owner. It's amazing to hear all the transformation that he achieves. My dog is a high-energy, ball-obsessed two-year-old Australian Shepherd with a, that a res- is a rescue that I got when she was five months of age, while I haven't trained her mostly with positive, while I have trained her mostly with positive reinforcement and she is smart and responsive, her one issue has been leash pulling in the great outdoors. Constant food rewards are impractical and she tries to, she, but she, and she tries of them anyway, tired, I think tired of them anyway, constantly stopping until she comes back to the with me zone makes me walk, makes the walk unfun indeed. And doing leash corrections literally every minute is perpetuity. Perpetuity is tiresome. Watching Tom's videos convinced me to try a prong collar, and I thought we were cheating, but couldn't argue with Tom's logic. After all, I've always put stronger bits on my horse in situations where I need more control to help us and others stay safe around us. And then had some power steering where I rarely had to touch their mouths, but same with the prong collar and the dogs. It was a game changer. My dog understood it right away, and now we have pleasant walks with only occasional subtle reminder to her that the loose leash is desired state at all times. It is wonderful. I can even see a difference when she's on her regular flat collar as well. The prong collar taught her how to be more mindful and where the end of the leash is and when to put leash pressure on and when not, excuse me, in a way that I couldn't achieve without any other method. We are both so happier because of it. Tom, here's my question. Like Lakota, my dog lives for the ball. I laugh so much every time you describe Lakota's state of mind regarding the ball because that's my dog too. We are beginning to compete in AKC rally and novice level, and I would like to phase out the food treats mostly and reward her with the ball. I now incorporate obedience training into our fetch sessions, and she's so keen. In my training ring at home, I have set up four baskets on the fence with with a ball in it. And as we train, I I make sure that we end a sequence, and I take a ball out of the basket where I free her for a couple ball tosses. And then we do some more training, stopping near another basket, and then rewarding her rinse and repeat. What are your thoughts about building a longer delay before she gets a ball reward? My goal is to show her that that I'm able to show her the ball in the and crate before heading into the ring and she knows that she will get the ball rewarded once she's done yeah i think that's a good idea your video showing lakota's focus on you was amazing my dog has the same laser focused um yeah so the answer is yes so if you want to build more duration you would basically flash the ball to the dog and let the dog know that they're going to get paid from the by the ball at the end of the sequence your your duration will push out um, and your distance will push out as you get better at it. So yeah, I would recommend to do that. Um, it's, it's just only a matter of time for the dog clicks that no matter what ring you step in and no matter how far you go, that the dog is going to get paid with the ball. So 
I, I would just say like whenever you're doing that really competitive fancy stuff that the dog always gets paid with the ball after, uh, that way when you're into the ring, there's not going to be any difference. So yeah, it's a good idea. Thank you for the review. Uh, the next one is 11A1A134A. <laughs> so helpful and I'm forward with five-star review. Thank you so much. Hi, Tom. Long-time follower. I've watched many of your YouTube videos and listened to your podcast. When I was first dealing with my German Shepherd's reactivity, your content was so helpful and informative, and I can't thank you enough. Fast forward two years later, her reactivity is a thousand times reduced, and she is off-leash training. I quit my job and Excuse me. I quit my job in business to apprentice with a local trainer for three months, and now I've been working on becoming a dog trainer. I couldn't be happier. My question is, is my three-and-a-half-year-old German Shepherd sound similar to Lakota in a sense? All she wants to do is play ball. <laughs> it's another ball question. She got... She will go for a walk and enjoys it, but as soon as we get back, she's straight outside to play with her jolly or soccer ball. My question is, how do you play with Lakota on a daily basis? I'm sure she would love to play... She would play, love to play ball all day long, but how do you play with her versus train her? <clears throat> Excuse me. So this is a good question um, versus how do you make her chill in the house? <sighs> okay. My dog, Lakota. If you don't know her, she's a s almost seven-year-old Dutch Shepherd, and she is ball-obsessed, as these people are saying. She's become such a big part of my brand and be become a big part of my business for obvious reasons. She's my dog, and she's in a lot of my videos. She's in a lot of my pictures. She's very sweet. She's very obedient. She's very flashy. Uh, she's very fun. She's pretty. Um, she's on the cover of my No Bad Dogs dog tour e-collar, so people like her a lot more than me, it seems, which is okay. <laughs> so she is also very focused, like these guys are saying, and my relationship with her is interesting especially nowadays because my career has changed but that's not the question the question is, is how do you uh, work on the ball stuff so for me it's like she has so much built up because of her breed right so she's got a full tank all the time especially if she hasn't been worked so I typically will do at least two chuck it sessions with her today that's to some degree Excuse me, and and t right now it's in the probably single digits, so it's cold. So I'm mindful of when and how we do these things. Um, so I, I usually like release some tension and release some some gas with her. With that, uh, I'll do a little bit of obedience. It's really about time, uh, and it's and it, that's what it comes down to to me. Is I would be doing obedience and paying her with the ball if I had more time. Um, so, but also too, you can do a lot more obedience with a ball and a rope. Um, we're working and developing on different balls and stuff for, for our training uh, site, for our No Bad Dogs training site. So we're kind of working on different merch that I would recommend because almost everything that I recommend and have uh, recommended to you guys is something that I would use myself or I would like to use. Right now we have literally balls on ropes and I don't like it because the ropes suck. I absolutely hate playing tug with a dog that wants to rip my arm off with a rope because it destroys my hand. I don't know why anybody ever would create these things, but they do. No offense to anybody creates them, but it's just really difficult to play tug because the, the dog just destroys your hand. It's impossible. Um, <clears throat> so we're working on that, but I would just say you know, I, I balance it with understanding that when is Lakota's next play session going to happen? When is she going to chase the ball next? Sometimes it's my mom and sometimes it's my assistant or my, our nanny or whatever, whatever it comes down to. It's like somebody's got to go out there and rip the ball with Lakota. Um, and, and, and that's just for her own sake. It's not because like she needs that 
per day. Like she needs that. It's not just like, oh, she's bored or, oh, she's busy or, or, or I mean, she wants to be busy or it's just like, that's what she needs. She needs that decompression and it doesn't happen every day, but that's what we try to do. Um, and then every now and then, like I'll do a little bit of obedience. Like the other night I felt bad cause I could just tell she was frustrated. She gets very witchy when she gets frustrated as most dogs do. So I'll just go down to my basement, do like touch pad stuff and have her find the ball and, uh, things like that, that we do at night. Um, so really it, because she's already trained, she'll listen to anything I say, but it's more fair for her to have some release throughout the day as well. So we'll do chuck it. We'll do a little obedience. Um, but if you have the time and the means to do it through, I mean, I have a newborn, I have, um, just a very busy work schedule as well. So it is difficult for me to find the time to go out and train. Uh, although, and I used to bring her to work all the time and now I, I don't work too much from the facility. I work from home mostly. So all of that is challenging, but that's the way that we do it is once she has her, like once she has that gas release, then she'll go and lay down and she'll be chill. Um, but she has to have that. So that's really what it comes down to for us is just working on that chuck it, working on that obedience, um, getting it in when we can. And then once she has that, then she's content. She'll go and she'll lay down and she'll be chill until the next person gets up to go to the door and then she's begging them to go out. So it's just a constant thing, but having a working dog like you do, that's what, that's, that's what we got them for. So anyway, hope that's helpful. Hope you guys enjoyed this podcast and we'll talk to you on Wednesday. Bye. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online master's of social work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.